Hello from beautiful Southern California. <laughs> Hello from very cold, dark Philadelphia. Oh, I expect nothing less from Philly. No, you're still in Southern Cal. Yeah, well, so I was in uh, I was in Arizona. So we like came through L.A. We go out to my mom's place in Arizona, and then we come back through because it's such a long drive. You can't really drive direct from San Francisco to Phoenix because the mountains are in the way. So it's about halfway to my in-laws. So we spent a day here coming down and uh, a couple days going back. So it's uh, a twofer. All the grandparents are visible, and uh, it's a pretty good trip. Love driving, though. I'll come back to that because there's something you wrote about recently I want to I want to touch right. upon with the road trip. But uh, big picture. Last time you were on this show— yeah. Oh, yeah. You were still the editorial director for Macworld. For like 48 hours, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, the, it was the night before the Apple event. It was like September 8th, I think. Yes. Or was it, was yeah. that it or was it the 7th? I, we might have recorded the 7th and published the 8th. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's right. I think I remember sending a note to Dave Wiskus saying, like, uh, is that going to go up before the Apple event? Because nobody's going to want to listen to it afterward. But yeah, it was, we were right on the cusp of the Apple event. And then the the Macworld layoffs and everything happened the next day. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was uh, pretty funny because I, I was like, oh, I, I I could talk to John about all, that. and then I was like, no, I can't talk to John about it because it's so so <laughs> so what big new things are going to happen this week? <laughs> I'm 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 frightened. Well, th- there's going to be a new year because the Earth goes around the sun, and nothing we can do can stop that. So uh, <laughs> it's going to be 2015. So there's something. And beyond that, uh, let's hope nothing. Uh, I could, I, uh, I could use a little less, uh, uh, fewer interesting events post talk show. For, so it it fascinates me though. It really does because you know, in the grand scheme of things, September is not that long ago. It's you know, three months. Yep. Uh, uh, yet somehow your new role, doing your thing at Six Colors and. You know, it it all seems settled already. Not you know, settled <laughs> is not quite right, but it feels normal to me now that you're writing at Six Colors and you know, MacWorld as we knew it doesn't exist anymore. I appreciate that. It's um, I mean, one of the big things, I've, and I've said this on other podcasts too. I, I w- it's not like I wasn't planning on leaving. I, I wasn't entirely sure. I mean. Uh, and I've said on other podcasts too, and I'll say it to you directly. I mean, you are obviously a huge inspiration, and Jim Dalrymple and Federico Vatici, and other people I know who have gone out on their own, John Moltz, and done their own websites, and you know, and some podcasts and some freelance and all of that. And I had been thinking about that for a while. Um, and in fact, a year ago, I started basically putting together a home office in my garage because my I, I we had no workspace in the house. It's a it's a pretty small house. And uh, and the garage was uh, we bought a minivan a few years ago and you couldn't can't park the minivan in the garage it's too big and so the garage became when we were redoing our kitchen it was a place where all the junk in the house went while we were redoing it and then that all came back in and sort of like what do we do in the garage and I was increasingly unhappy with my job and I kept thinking you know the garage needs to be a home office and I started building it and the entire intent was not to have really nice work at home days the intent was that that would be my office eventually because I would leave MacWorld and I would want to at least try to do my own thing rather than go you know they, we had always joked um, one of the past presidents of Macworld and I had joked that like oh Jason will be the last one to turn the lights off at Macworld at the end Macworld will be just Jason in his garage um, 
doing Macworld. And I had that re- moment when I was watching you and Federico and Jim and people like that, that um, I thought to myself, well, one, if, I'm, if people can do that on their own, I don't need to do that here. And if I'm going to do that, I want to own it. I want to be that the person who does that, not... Uh, just kind of uh, doing all my work toward the you know mysterious overlords who own a company who owns a company that owns a company that owns Macworld, and so I was I was planning it. So in a way, I've been thinking about it for a long time, for more than a year. And then there was the so we we saw each other at at uh, XOXO right afterward too. So I, I I got to see you a couple of times right around that crazy yeah. time, and I saw you at the Apple event. So I saw you three times in like a week, um, and. Uh, what was really funny about that time is that because of the timing, because we got the the iPhone review units and the iPhone reviews were all going to drop the following week, and I had this moment where a normal person would have said, I just left my job of 17 years. I'm going to take a, a few weeks to recalibrate and decide what I'm going to do next. And for me, it was one, I'd already been thinking about what I wanted to do next. And two, I had that iPhone. And I was like, well, everybody everybody knows the biggest time of the year for writing about Apple stuff is when the new iPhones and iOS and macOS come out. And that's now. So I thought, you know what? I got to launch the site like next week. And so like literally less than a week after I left Macworld, Six Colors launched. Not because I'm a total crazy person, but because I felt like I couldn't not be out there at that moment um, so I think it's those two things. It's that I managed to hit that site when, when we were at the high season for Apple stuff. And because I'd been thinking about it for so long that I was ready to make it happen. Um, and that, you know, and, and it does feel, and it feels great too. So it feels right to be doing it. So I think all of those things maybe feed into why it feels like a natural thing and not some like crazy thing that just happened a couple months ago, even though that's sort of what happened. How, how long were you at, uh, IDG? Uh, well, I was a Macworld, Macworld 17 years. Um, I've been doing this, a uh, little more than 20, coming up 21 years of sort of full-time Apple stuff. But that counts um, a start counts at Mac Davis. user. So, so I was a Mac user until 97, 94 to 97. And then, and then what happened is that, um, which is a, just a hilarious moment in Apple history, right? 97, Jobs is coming back, but but Apple is dying. Um, and everybody's thinking, oh, Apple's going to go out. At Macworld Expo, they actually have the cash infusion from Microsoft to keep the lights on. And meanwhile, they're working on the iMac. And at that moment, that summer, right before the Bill Gates thing at Macworld Expo in Boston, the executives at IDG and Ziv Davis said, we need to cut our losses because Apple is going to die. And we've got these two magazines and these two big staff. So why don't we just share the risk, um, put put the two organizations together, lay off half of each staff and just sort of stick them all together and make one magazine. And we'll do, we'll do that because Apple's a loser. We're, we're, we need to get out of this business. It was the single worst time, uh, just terrible timing because, you know, a couple months later, even it was clear that Apple was going to be probably okay. And then very rapidly after that, much better than okay. Um, and so as a result, I went over to Macworld and it was this weird 50-50 joint venture where, you know, these two arch enemy companies co-owned our company and were at each other's throats except for us. And that was really bizarre. And then after a couple of years, you know, Ziff Davis was going through, they were getting bought and rebought and different investors and had all sorts of financial problems because the guy who started that company retired. His sons didn't want to take over the family business, so they sold it off. There were, you know, it was a financial mess. Was and that so, Ziff or was that Davis? It was Bill Bill Ziff. And the Ziff brothers, his kids, 
were like, <laughs> screw this media crap. Uh, we're going to be you know venture capitalists. And so they just sold the business. And they sold it to, I mean, it's kind of inside baseball, but they sold it to, uh, I think, Teddy Forstman, who was like, at one point had been romantically linked to Princess Diana. I mean, like crazy stuff. And then he sold it like a year later to Masayoshi Son of SoftBank in Japan, who, was, who bought it. Uh, I think Teddy Forstman picked up a billion dollars by holding it for a year. Pretty good deal. Wow. Uh, good job, Teddy. Um, and, and then SoftBank. Talk about it, ancient history, though. It, like, just think yeah. about the basic story of picking up a billion dollars by holding a mostly print focused. By, by, yeah, magazine publisher. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for they a picked, year. Well, I mean, it was not worth what Masayoshi's son paid for it. Right. That guy was a visionary, but he was also kind of crazy, and the money he was spending was kind of crazy. He's still around doing other stuff. But anyway, so that was all so messed up that Ziv Davis was like, uh, we want money. <laughs> and IDG was very much. Like, oh, well, we, we messed this up and we want to be in the Apple business. Macworld was the first Apple, you know, Mac pu- publication. We want to keep that going. And so they bought them out. So the answer to the question is I was probably at IDG. My, you know, my start date as an employee was was 20 years. But my, my IDG employee start date was different. And that was like uh, the end of 97 or the beginning of 98. And then, you know, the, the buyout happened like around 99 or 2000. So it's a weird situation where I, I ended up never having to fill out a resume and had like worked for three different owners <laughs> it's very strange i only in the in the media i think just crazy stuff like that happened right and i mean you must have been really really young when you started at mac user it must have been right out of college right yeah i i went to um when i finished college i uh all the all, my friends who got jobs in, in in media were like working at weekly newspapers for like eleven thousand dollars a year and i basically said no forget it i'm not going to do that and so i went to journalism school and although I enjoyed my time at journalism school a lot, the fact is my, my college newspaper was my journalism school, and I learned how to write news stories and features and edit stories and all of that at the newspaper. Uh, the things I learned in, at, at Berkeley Journalism School were that I didn't want to do TV news because <laughs> I tried and I didn't like it. Um, and uh, I, met, I made contacts. I'm, I met people, including one of the editors at Mac User who taught a class there, and she got me an internship. So I was an intern in 93. Three when I was 22, and I had a job January 94. So yeah, I was 23 when I started full-time. So pretty I th- young. I think that the historical context that you have to remember is that the 96, 97 was a terrible time for Apple. It was the worst. And, and, and a terrible, t- even worse, probably even worse than Apple itself was the perception, where even, they really were in trouble. By any objective measure, the company was was in serious, serious mm-hmm. trouble, both technically and financially. But even given that, I think that the general perception was even worse. That it was, I mean, it, it, to say doom and gloom, it's it's it it's not. It, you can't overstate it that the perception. Yeah. Was truly. I remember that. I remember that we would be like, "Look, guys, it's not quite that bad, right?" But it was. It was very much. I think about this now. When when the Apple because Apple is doomed has been a meme that's been around forever and it continues to this day. And on one level, you know, the people who make the arguments today, the facts of what they're arguing tend are arguing tend to be stupid. They're like, that's not really a fact or that's that you're not looking at the whole picture. But in the back of my mind, I always have that moment of let's see what they're arguing here, because I was present at a time when doom and gloom was happening and there was doom and there was gloom. <laughs> and it, at the time, it did seem like it was a little overstated. But, you know, the fact was that that um, I don't think it was overstated in that year. 
uh, in like 96, 97 in the Gil Emilio and um, them searching for a new operating system and and uh, Steve Jobs coming in. That seemed to be the point where they were burning money and not selling a lot. And the clones were eating their lunch in terms of hardware sales. So even their their big install base was not really benefiting them. And that was where they were. Um, that was that was when they were falling apart. And and that's the era that you get the kind of you know s- sell the company and give the money back to the shareholders kind of quotes. Is that was a moment where it was unclear whether the the executives at that time were going to listen to the advice of. Uh, you know, analysts and, and pundits and like become a software company and try to be Microsoft Windows and end up being like OS2 and dying. And uh, and Jobs, to his credit, one of the things he did when he came back, and it was extremely unpopular, was kill the clones and say, no, 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 we need to control the hardware. We're not going to just be an OS company. We're going to control the hardware. And that decision actually factored into the publishing companies deciding to to uh, fold mac user into mac world was all the ad revenue was coming from those clone makers too and that just vanished motorola uh, yeah. and uh pow- power uh... power computing motorola um super mac which was i think umax did it but yeah. they called them super mac because they got that license from apple for like scanners but it turned out they could use it for anything so they called they could call them super mac what were the though, power what were the power computing ones called the power tower power wave um I had a Power Wave, which was the which was a you know that was my one non Apple computer that I've ever bought <laughs> was the Power Computing Power Wave Power Tower Pro. They had a whole bunch of power related things. I I never owned one, but I'd uh, we had a, I used a couple. It was way the the the, uh, the Power Wave um, and the Power Tower Pro. They were way better than the Power Max of the era. I, I really I really do believe. I mean, they were all beige. They were like they were Apple gray or you could get power computing beige, but they were all beige boxes. But they were they were pretty cool. They were like they, essentially power computing was like Dell. I think it was all Dell executives in, in Austin and they were trying to use Dell uh, build to order. You know, you order it and then we make it and then we ship it to you technologies to, to cut cut their margins and have no inventory. And uh, it was a pretty well run company. I mean, and I guess well run enough that not only was it the, really the number one clone maker, but well run enough that they had enough leverage of some kind that Apple just bought them out, right? Rather than just letting them die, Apple or, bought or, their property or fight them legally, you exactly because there would have been lawsuits for sure. Right? Because iOS eight or not iOS eight? See, there we go. Mac OS eight. See, I would have called it. I, my mistake would have been to call it System Eight. System Eight, sure. Mac OS eight was um, a major update, and what uh, Apple, what Jobs realized, and his people when they came back is that the clone licenses were for system seven. So they basically said, this is OS eight and you don't get it. And that was how they killed the clones. <laughs> it was pretty simple, really nice and clean. And then they ended up paying some people off, including buying the assets of, of power computing. Right. Because the original plan for Mac OS eight was a little bit more ambitious than what it ended up being. It was more or less like a nicely cleaned up version of system, system seven, five, six. Yeah. But with a theme to make it look new. Right. Right. Never underestimate how much a new window Chrome can make uh, make it look like something new that it wasn't. But here's the thing. I, I, the historical context. So Apple was in severe trouble, and it's no surprise that, that Ziff Davis and IDG would, would make a deal like that. But it is funny, like you said, like people don't remember this. And I was on the outside. I wasn't writing, uh, you know, I wasn't writing anything, you know, for magazines at the time yet. Um, but I was, an, uh, you know, no surprise, a very avid reader of both Mac user and Macworld um, all through the 90s. So I was aware of this, but that it was this weird, strange bedfellows thing where 
when they unified the two, it was this joint venture between t- the two arch rival tech oh, yeah. publishing companies. So with a, a staff comprised of the two of of half of like literally, we're going to lay off half your colleagues, and then we're going to stick you with your arch enemies. Go make a magazine. Good luck. <laughs> it was. It wasn't just the owners. It was like the staff. We were. We were uh, the Yankees and the Red Sox. Okay, <laughs> and uh, all of it because I have. I have to use baseball metaphors when I'm on the talk show. Uh, and suddenly they're like, okay, we're going to release half the Yankees and half the Red Sox, and then you're going to have a new team. Good luck. Make the chemistry work. And it was a disaster. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> I I was always. Uh... And there were they were very different magazines. I think oh, yeah. that uh, you know from the outside view, MacWorld was a little bit more staid mm-hmm. and buttoned up and formal in tone and in coverage. And Mac user was a little bit more casual and uh, more like personal computer, like user centric. You know, like a yeah. home, you're, 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 we're assuming that you're a little bit more likely to be a home user or a student. Or an enthusiast, and MacWorld was a little bit more for the perfect. You know, you're using a Mac at work. Yeah, and it was it had a more authoritative tone. It was actually the, I think the tagline was the Macintosh Authority at one point, and and it was the prestige. I mean, it had a bigger staff, it had a bigger budget. Uh, Mac user was always a little more homespun, a little more um, just as a reader. And I was a reader of both, and and before I started at Mac user, and uh, it was a little more of the rebels and the users. And people who who don't go back that far, an analog would be something like Mac Addict a little bit. Mac Addict was even more so, I think, than Mac User, uh, a a rebellious kind of thing. But that was definitely the the voice difference between Mac User and Mac World, which is funny because when you think about it on another level, there were like the two magazines in the U.S. that were monthly that had roughly the same budget. You know, Mac World was bigger than Mac Users, but roughly the same, doing the same thing. Their uh, headquarters at the end there were like two blocks away from each other. So these are you couldn't find things that were more similar, and yet the output was different, and the staffs were different, and the culture was different. So it's kind of funny that even though we had all of these things in common, the products were different, and the the people were different. I and I I do think too as an outside observer and someone who was very critical. I thought both were excellent magazines. I agree, and especially compared to the other oh, P- yeah. PC type magazines of the era. You know, oh, yeah, we that, were we, we were in the same building as like PC Computing, and and there was also PC Mag and PC World, and I didn't read them a lot, but um, you know, Ma- yeah, and MacWorld was full of the old MacWorld was full of people who really they wanted to be in the magazine business. And they, they had high aspirations, and you would see it. And at Mac user, it was a combination. You'd look at their issues when they'd come out, and you'd be like, oh, wow, look what they did with that. Because they did the same stories, a lot of them, that we did, right? There's a new Apple product. How are we going to do it? How are they going to do it? And you could just compare, which is like, that is some serious competition. Like, you, you you put it to bed, and you wait two weeks, and then suddenly out of the mailbox comes the competition. What did they do? And did, they, did you beat them? Did they beat you? And they they would you you would look at some of their things and be like wow that is they did a really good job. Other times you'd be like ah they they uh, you know we we did them one better. But then at MacWorld what they would really do is they would have these ambitions to do like uh, like New York uh, New York magazine industry kind of stories, bigger picture stories and big features and big ideas. And some of those were uh, real successes for them, and some of those were uh, I would say failures that were kind of the hubris of like you know yeah we're MacWorld but really we might as well be Vanity Fair right. <laughs> and I think that was a part of their their culture there where MacWorld MacWorld was that and Mac user was more um 
you know, Apple people who were there because they loved writing about technology. And this is, uh, you know, not entirely true of both staffs, but I would say predominantly there were many more people who loved magazines and were writing at a technology magazine because that was the job at Macworld. And there were more people who were there because they loved the technology and happened to get a job writing about it at a magazine at Mac user. We were more, and, and you saw it in the end, the people who stuck around covering Apple afterward and writing about tech afterward were mostly people from Mac user and not from Macworld. Yeah, the people from Macworld who I remember who've obviously gone on to, you know, continue to do great work. Uh, Pogue. Pogue, Pogue yep. was a back page columnist and Stephen, Stephen Levy Stephen was. Levy. Um, Both I of which we, were not on staff. They were they were freelance columnists. Right. But yeah, but did, absolutely. Did a lot of the back page columns, which yeah. I, you know, was yeah. always oh, what I, got I aspired to, to be. <laughs> I got to edit Pogue for a while and that was that was great. He wrote features for us and he wrote the back page and... Um, and he was a pleasure to work with, and I still, you know, I still keep in touch with him. It was a, it was a pleasure to work with Pogue. My plan was always to figure out a way that I could get to that back page without having to do any of the grunt work of being a regular editorial staffer for years beforehand. Well, mission and accomplished. I, and mission accomplished. I, I wound up figuring out just such a way. <laughs> um, and I think I would say this, and too that the. the the person who, to me, best exemplified the Mac user side of that split in that era was the fact that Andy Inatko was on was a Mac user writer at yeah. the time, and you know, talk about another guy who's who, you know never been you know still at the top of his game now and still writing about the same stuff, uh, but the way that his his writing is so infused with his personal style, right, right. Uh, was very very Mac user, you mm -hmm. know that we're just going to let we're, we've got this nut on our staff and we're just going to let him fly. Well, I mean, the Mac user it was it was Andy and Chris Breen and Bob Levitas and I mean these are people who write with personality, <laughs> right. and that was definitely uh, the idea. And at Mac, when I got to MacWorld, um, that was one of the things that surprised me is that there was a uh, a statement that they valued their writers that I heard a lot, but it, it did seem to me that it was also a machine kind of generating um a consistent copy and you, what you do when you generate consistent copy is you also stamp out voice and i would say that macworld was much tighter on that front but also had less voice and yeah. mac user was definitely messier it was it was you know i i would say in fact you go back and look at old mac user stuff and it, you tell me which which mac user or macworld which one would seem more reasonable on a blog today it's very clear mac user was in that yeah. style they were they were much looser and had more voice than macworld did uh i remember arguing on on with fellow editorial staffers on my college newspaper at Drexel in, you know, this would be 94, 95, 96, about which was better. And the two other guys who really were, were really, you know, both into writing and were pursuing careers in writing, you know, or thinking about it at least, and were Mac nerds and read both magazines monthly. The other two guys, Adam and Andrew, were both on them. Oh, come on. Macworld's the better magazine. Um, because I think that they were looking at that, you know, like you said, like it's a little bit more like it's a magazine magazine. Yeah, it's polished and, and – yeah. Well, Mac user was always very polished. It didn't lack polish. But it, hmm. it to me, my argument – remember my argument was it just seems to me like the people at Mac user are having more fun doing – they're having more fun putting these issues hmm. out. And I was like, why, why would you want to get into this if it wasn't to have fun? Well, that was a great. I mean, I still stay in touch with those people from Mac user, and I I don't know. I assume that the MacWorld people stay in touch too. I really can't speak to that side, but we were yeah. It was a great. It was a great group of people, and um and that was and yeah, we were very proud of our product. I would say that it it was um less polished only in 
in calculated ways. <laughs> like you want it to look a little wackier and, and, and be a little messier because that shows the personality, but it was not like we didn't know what we were doing. It was like, you know, let's, that was what we were trying to do. It's like a, a band making an album that sounds raw and right. not super produced. It's because you want it to, that's the effect that you want. And, and honestly, if you're, if you're the number two, then you, you don't want to pretend to be number one. You want to do something different. And Mac user was very definitely number two to Macworld. So that was what we did. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's just funny that in the end, um, in the end, I spent 17 years at Macworld, but if you'd asked me the first three years I was working in the business, I'd be like, oh, Macworld, I hate those guys. <laughs> and and it ends up being the brand that I'm most associated with in my career, which is just crazy. And I, every now and then on Twitter, I get, there are two things I get, like, it's like there's an alarm that goes off. Every three months or so, somebody sends me a thing saying, is this you at the uh, at the iPod announcement event? Because there is a reverse shot of the audience a couple of times, and I'm in it. I'm totally, yes, it is me. Um, and the other one that pops up is, hey, I was watching this rerun of Friends, and there's and Chandler is reading an issue of Macworld. And I thought, you know, and they, they think of me, and they're like, oh, isn't this cool that Macworld was in Friends? And I appreciate that because they're thinking of me in connection with the brand. That's great. Um, I was a Mac user when that episode aired, and I was so <laughs> pissed off. It's like, god damn it, why is it Mac World? <laughs> right, now, Chan- Chandler would have been a Mac user guy. Yeah, I know, yeah. Could he be more of a Mac user guy? But in the end, now I like, I love it, because it's like, yeah, there's a Mac magazine and Friends. That's great. That And, and it would be. That, that guy would read a computer magazine. That was shorthand for what kind of a nerd he was, and that's great. But uh, it's funny, because that's how far I've come around now, is at the time, it was just infuriating, because our arch enemy got on must-see TV on NBC. And now I look back and it's like, yay, look, Macworld on Friends. That's great. It's just, it's, you know, that's what happens. I end up spending 17 years at what was originally the arch enemy. I, I imagine that's not to use another baseball metaphor, but I imagine that's what it's like if you like grew up a Giants fan and then you end up getting drafted by the Dodgers and play for the Dodgers. It's like, well, you know, now I'm a Dodger. <laughs> that's just how it is. I grew up a right. Giants fan. That's great, but I'm not there anymore. I'm, I'm here. Or if it's your son or something, you know, or totally something like right. that. It's where, like, where it just changes your perception after right. a while. It's like, who gives a crap? You know, it, yeah. you know, if your son is playing for the Red Sox, boy, you're, you know, next day you're going out and you're buying a lot of Red Sox stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then bef- uh, before we leave the subject, the last thing I wanted to touch on, though, is that, all right, Apple, terrible shape, 96, 97. Oh, man. Yeah. P- print industry as a whole, almost unspeakably high. Yeah. At at that time. Like you can't and you think in hindsight, well, how could that be? Because the I, I think in hindsight we can all see the writing was on the wall that um newspaper and magazine publishers didn't get the internet, still don't to a large extent, and that it, it even if they did, that it the way that it was gonna affect advertising revenue and the time that people spend reading and how they spend reading it was all going to be massively disrupted. And you'd think by 97, 98, that that would have been evident, but it wasn't because profits were at an all time high. And I I say this as someone who was at the time working at the, as a graphic designer at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Yeah. Uh, 
all they the, had, the money was i mean that that was where all the advertising was there was no there was momentum on the internet people were getting interested in it but there was no money on the internet that would be crazy and i you know i had somebody tell me we're not interested in even doing a web page because the future is on CompuServe. i mean it was just they were not there was so much money in print advertising that like computer shopper which was also a ziff davis property when i was at ziff davis that was like a phone book that came out every month and all it was was ads there was a, enough editorial to allow them to use the editorial rate when they shipped it in the in the post postal service but it was it was not meant as an editorial product it was a catalog and that was just literally we just made a thing so you could put your ads in this thing and then we'll send it out that was because, the, that was the world then and the reason why was because the only way that as somebody who is going to be buying external hard drives or scuzzy cables or uh, uh printer cartridges or all of the various crap that you needed to buy to keep your office running uh you needed something like Computer Shopper so that you could see what was available and what it cost. I yeah, mean, you needed that, it. That was how you shopped for stuff. I mean, when I, um, right when uh, the Macworld thing happened and I was going to XOXO, um, Neelay Patel from The Verge sent me an email and said, would you like to write a, write a thing? We're scanning in a bunch of old Macworld covers. Would you like to write a thing about the, the end of Macworld in print? And I said, sure. And that was that was what I ended up going with because I thought, okay, The Verge's audience is, is pretty young. They may not even remember computer magazines as anything but kind of an oddity you see in, a, in an airport or something. And, and that was the point I made was there was a time when the only way you found out about a new product and the only way you found like what you could buy was by buying a computer magazine. So like the computer magazine would come out and you would you would pour over the pages to find out what Apple announced or what Microsoft announced or whatever you were interested in and then in the back you would leaf through and be like uh, you know what monitor should I get or what cable can I get and you know there's an ad here for you know 1-800-MAX and here's Mac Warehouse over here and Club Mac over there and you'd, you'd pour over that stuff and I did that I mean I would go through those issues 10-20 times parsing every sentence about which power book I wanted to buy and parsing every uh, list of of uh, products in the different uh, back of the magazine catalogs for the best, you know, the best deal on some accessory. And then you'd call an 800 number and give them your credit card and they'd ship it to you and you'd get it like five days later. That was the way the the tech world worked. And, you know, now it's really different. But back then that was, that magazine was not the only, but almost the only conduit for that information. Yeah. People just did not see that disruption coming. And then the equivalent for newspapers was classified ads. Where right. anything you needed to buy, like you need to rent, you got to rent a new apartment. You know, your roommates, <laughs> your roommates are moving out of town and by September you've got to find a new place to live. Well, the only way to do it was to, to use a newspaper. Mm -hmm. There was, there, I mean, there wasn't, there was no plan B. You yeah, it was, to, it was essentially a monopoly just because of the, you know, right. that, they were the only ones. Maybe there's a, an alt weekly. I will say the one thing that I, I think was a sign in hindsight of the magazine stuff falling apart was all of those catalogs started printing, you know, they, they started doing all their money into catalogs. It's like we were going to print a catalog. All the mail order companies just became catalogs and they, they, they took the hit on postage. <laughs> Although I, in hindsight, I also think they should have just hired a couple of young editors to wrap enough content around it to call it a magazine, Mac Warehouse Magazine. Right. Um, but that, and, and that actually really put, that was the first time I think that those computer magazines really felt the pain of, of their ad revenues going down was the catalogs were like a guaranteed uh, seller for them. And then suddenly they would pull out and go back down to a couple of pages because, you know, they would, they would rent the list from Macworld and then send everybody who gets Macworld a catalog. And that was cheaper. 
and that was less money for Macworld. And that totally happened. So th- th- there were some signs, right, that things were starting to break apart. Um, and the computer readers are always going to be the first one to embrace that new technology. So I always knew that they would be the ones to, uh, we would we would feel it first. And we, and we totally did. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, it's the same reason why 10, well, probably more like 15 years ago when, when blogs first started percolating up and becoming a thing that so many of them were technology focused. Oh, yeah. I mean, just a, a unbelievably disproportionate number of them were technology focused compared to the interests of the world at large, because it's the people who are enthusiastic about technology who were able to get it up and, you know, get a blog up and running and keep and, it running. And that's the story of my life, which is I, I had a nice job at a, at a, at a tech publisher. Um, and so when I wanted to experiment with blogs, I couldn't really write about technology because that was my day job. So, you know, all those great tech blogs being founded then, and I did a, like a stupid TV blog, which was great. And it was early in the days of, of blogging and I learned a lot, but that was one of those funny things that I ended up experimenting in all of these other areas because my employer wasn't that interested in experimenting in those areas. <laughs> that's, you know, that's why I do so many side projects is because for years, my employer wasn't interested in trying those things out. They were, they were looking at where all the money was coming from, which is that that's the core of the innovator's dilemma, right? It's very hard to focus on something when there is this giant sack of money right in front of you. Let me take a break and thank um, first sponsor on this show. And it is our good friends at Backblaze. Now, you guys know Backblaze. Online, unthrottled, unlimited backup for the Mac. And people write to me sometimes because there's frequent sponsor. And they say, unlimited, what do you mean? And it, I'm telling you, whatever you've got connected to your Mac, if you've got a three terabyte drive, you've got a six terabyte drive, and it's all filled up with junk, Backblaze will back it all up. Doesn't matter. They don't charge extra if you have more. It just takes longer for the initial backup. That's the, if there's a catch, that's it. That if you've got six terabytes of stuff to back up, well, it's going to take a long time to get it backed up. Once it's backed up, it's backed up, and then it's just everything else is, uh, you know, incremental after that. You just install Backblaze on your Mac. I can't emphasize how simple this is. You install it. You sign up for an account. You don't even have to pay. For a month, it's free. It's just try it out. Everything gets backed up. And then what do you do from that point forward to stay backed up? Nothing. You just keep your Mac running, and it runs silently in the background. And every once in a while, it just uploads what's new, keeps everything in sync. They've got an iPhone app so that you can access your account, which will get you access to anything, any of your files that are backed up in Backblaze. You can just grab them from the iPhone app at any time. Email them right there from your iPhone or whatever when you're away from your Mac. Um, so it's got plenty of uses that are not just about catastrophic, oh, my God, my whole computer is broken, the whole hard drive froze up, I've got nothing, uh, I need to restore everything. They can deal with that. Um, but it's also useful for just restoring one file at a time when you're on the road at somewhere else and you just need to grab it. Could not be more useful either way. When you do need a full thing, if you need your whole system restored, you don't have to wait to download the whole thing. You can uh, you can pay a little bit of money, and they'll put everything on a USB hard drive and overnight it to you, and then boom, there you are the next day with a hard drive with all of your stuff. Unbelievable peace of mind knowing that you've got everything backed up offline, out of your house, out of your office. Um, where do you go to find out more? I can't believe there's still people who listen to this show who haven't signed up, but here's where you go. Go to backblaze.com slash daringfireball. You get a risk-free 
No credit card required trial. Just install it, try it, guarantee you, you'll sign up. And then after that, here's what you pay. You pay five bucks a month per Mac that you're backing up. That's it. Five bucks a month, everything backed up. So my thanks to Backblaze. Um, just a tremendous, tremendous service, really. I, I say it before I say it again. I hope they stop sponsoring the show because everybody who listens to the show signs up for them at some point. <laughs> uh which brings me to a post you had on uh, six uh, six colors this week about uh, a sponsorship that didn't go well. Yeah, you had yeah. A, it was like a what'd you say? No other gatekeeper but me. And you wrote that one of the privileges of being an editor yeah, right. um, that before you didn't really have to worry about it. That there really was a, a separation between editorial and sales. You know that you just worried about you guys on the editorial side just worried about what you're going to write about. And you had a sales staff that sold stuff. And, you know, in theory, it sold ads. And in theory, they could have sold an ad that you guys were, you know, some somehow uncomfortable with and you could have had a discussion or whatever. But for the most part, you didn't need to worry about it. But now, as a one-person publishing company, you do. Yeah, there was a, it turns out there is a great luxury in being able to be an editor at a large organization and win some ad that is selling i mean like at macworld we had a bunch of like dvd ripper apps that were um you know spamming our forums and writing these fake posts native ad ad posts about that were posing as how to's but it was for their software and just really awful junky stuff and we had the luxury i mean behind the scenes we would complain about it but we also had the luxury of saying hey guys it's not us you know we have salespeople; they don't tell us what to write and we don't tell them what ads to sell and um when you're in my position and your position, I mean, you've got, um, right now I don't have anybody selling spots for me, um, but that might happen uh, down the road. Let me, my recording died, let me. But I know you've got somebody selling, selling it, but it's still a small operation. It's like you, you got you and, and maybe Dave uh, working on, on ad sales. And, and, you know, it comes to you. You're the proprietor, even if you've got somebody selling for you. Uh, and with podcasts, it's like this. When I have somebody selling an ad in my podcast or you do in yours, you've got, um, you're the proprietor, even if you've got somebody selling it. And you have to make that decision. You have to say, um, yeah, this ad is okay. And, and and so even if it's not, you know, every ad is not a personal endorsement uh, and you can't, I had somebody say that to me and I wrote about it in that post. It's like, I don't, I'm not a developer, but I know I can look at a developer service or tool and say, that seems good to me. That seems on the up and up. It's, it fits with the audience. Yeah. You can't um, have it. You can't have it. Like I know it, it, in theory, it sounds great that it, you would only take a sponsorship from a service or product that you actually use. And the deck for a while uh, maybe they still even say that, but then at, with the deck, it's a big thirty site network, and it's not that hard to say that somebody somewhere in the network is using the thing. Right. Um, but when it's just you and it's just me, I can't do that. It's, no, and and and, I and also, it's not even fair. Like I use BB Edit. If I have to code something up, I use BB Edit. Yep. But would I accept a sponsorship from Coda? Of course I would. Coda is an amazing app from a great company, and in theory, I maybe someday I would use it. You know, what I mean, that's to me right. is my criteria. Is is this something that I would recommend because I use it? That that criteria isn't. It's too limiting. Is this something that I would recommend readers investigate and consider? Yes, right. absolutely. That's right. my criteria, and, and it has to cross. It has to cross that level, and that's harder to define. But it it, it has to cross that level um, to be something you feel comfortable. I mean, on one level, it's just to be comfortable with it, 
and say, I think this is a legitimate product and all that. And again, I don't want to throw the guys under the bus who did that sponsorship, but the fact is, and they have a story. And I think part of their problem is there's a language barrier. And um, although I'm skeptical of that product and, and, you know, it's an antivirus product and included an iOS component and everybody's like, whoa, well, iOS antivirus, that seems really shady to me. And they have, you know, again, they have a, a marketing story that I think they're not telling effectively, but the bottom line was, I don't believe in iOS antivirus. I don't think that's a thing. And I don't think, I think my audience doesn't think that's a thing. And I I'm skeptical about Mac antivirus, but at least I'm a little more open-minded about that than I am about iOS. And and so when it when I posted this thing, which you know I didn't I didn't read the stuff closely when I got it because I was traveling, and then I put it up and like at, before as I was going out the door, um, and then people started saying, "What the hell is this?" And I I you know I didn't have an an answer for them, and that was that moment where I'm like, oh you know, if I don't if I can't conceive of somebody asking me and me having an answer. That's probably not a product I should. If I'm not comfortable standing by it to that point, not saying I tried it and I like it, but I think this is a reasonable per, reasonable person would think that this product is interesting and you should check it out. Um, that that to me would be the difference. And so you know, I, while sitting in the passenger seat of my car, I didn't. This all blew up while I I drove the first leg, <laughs> and my wife drove the second leg, and I opened up my phone and I'm like, oh geez. And in the course of about an hour, I responded to uh, the the tweets about it. Um, looked more at the at, at at the the company's responses, um, thought about it a little bit, and then I actually opened up you know I opened up Transmit for iOS and edited the include file for the sponsor on my server and I took it out and I deleted their post and I posted a tweet about it and I sent an email to the guy saying look I'm gonna you know I'll refund your money but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna run the the ad because I'm not comfortable with it and my audience isn't comfortable with it and I actually got a text from Lex Friedman saying um, what what if I uh, what if I sell that spot for you? And I said, sure, go ahead if you want to sell it. And he did. And I posted the new ad all all from sitting in the passenger seat of my car on my iPhone, which is a pretty fun like technology story. But um, but yeah, it was uh, it was educational because I, I couldn't run and hide behind the salespeople. It, 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 you know, and you're you're in the exact same boat and Jim Dalrymple's in the same boat. And, you know, all, all of us who are out here doing this thing, we aren't. We aren't insulated like that, and so we have to make different rules. and And there is an expectation that some people have that that when we read an ad, you know, on a podcast or or post a sponsor on our sites, that that it's a personal endorsement. And what I always say is, if I have used the product, I will, and and I, and I want to talk about that, I will talk about it. But you're not, your money doesn't buy my personal endorsement. My personal endorsement can't be for sale. That's the flip side of the. Not only is it impractical to try every product, and not every product is for you, even though you know it's good. The flip side is, I want the freedom to evaluate every product that I want to. And if I'm selling evaluations, that calls the whole thing into question. So you, you have to, you know, those rules are very different than if you're in a big editorial organization, but you still have to kind of come up with the rules and try to disclose them uh, to your audience as best you can, I think. But it was a good lesson for me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Antivirus it falls into an interesting crevice where it's a close call. And and I would say that the the sibling to antivirus are system cleanup utilities. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I don't think I've ever taken a sponsorship for antivirus because I really do believe strongly that you you not only don't need it on a Mac, but that you actually, it will cause, typically cause more harm than good. Mm -hmm. uh, I really do believe that. And, you know, for iOS, it's even more so. I think it's at that point you're talking about snake oil. 
Um, now there's possible, you know, I don't know, you know, like the case of the sponsor you're talking about, I, I, it's possible that you could use something on iOS that would have something to do with antivirus where you're scanning email attachments somehow I, or something I think that's like what that. they're doing is they're right. scanning attachments in your email and maybe on your Dropbox or stuff like that right. for the, viruses, but it's not going to affect your, your iOS device. Right. It's not so hard for me to come up with a what if scenario where it would have some actual practical utility in theory. But I don't see how it, you know, yeah, exactly. It's not actually doing antivirus at the system level on iOS like what you think of traditionally. Right. And then you simplify the marketing message and it's protect your your iPhone. And that's not right. And that's, right. that's I think that's where a lot of this, uh, this comes from. And the cleanup utilities are, to me, it's a little bit more like the antivirus to me is a little bit more on the dark side of the gray mm -hmm. area. And the cleanup utilities are a little bit more on the light side. But I have, I have had sponsors who run you know, clean up utilities. And I think it's been a while. And I remember somebody on Twitter one time just, you know, I, I, they weren't being antagonistic. They weren't trying to, to, to jab me, but it was an honest question there. Like, do you use this? Would you recommend it? And I remember thinking like, eh, probably not. And I kind of felt a little like I didn't take the sponsorship back and I don't quite regret it, but it was as closest I've ever come. Because I just wasn't sure. Because I don't think a lot of that stuff is all that useful either. I feel like part of the genius of the OS X system design is that you don't typically get – the system doesn't degrade over time. Right. Which did happen with classic Mac OS. And if you weren't careful, right. and, and certainly Windows, right? Definitely and they want, happens they, with Windows. They want a Mac. I mean, so many of these things happen because it's like, oh, uh, we have a Windows product, we have an Android product, we need a Apple products. And they can't really do much, but they want to have that that spread of products. And so they come out with one. Although, you know, cleanup, especially with SSDs, there's totally, and they may be out there, but there's totally a good case to be made for cleanup yep. that's doing smart things. Like you've got preferences from apps from 2004 that you, yep. that you migrated and you've got duplicate files in all these different places and you've got iTunes match turned on, but I, so I could save a lot of uh, space by deleting your, uh, your music folder. Yeah. Uh, Stuff like that. There, there is an argument to be made, but you're right. Then you get in the details, and you're like, eh, "Do I really believe in this particular product enough to not enough to endorse it, but enough to expose my audience to it?" Because there is there is some understanding between between us and our audiences that uh, some of the stuff's going to be you know, vetted at least, right? Yeah. It's on the up and up, right? Not necessarily yeah. we endorse it and use it personally, but it's on the up and up. And I, right. I, I think that's right. I think they, they should expect that from us. The, the, the next, it, you know, because it dates all the way back to next, but that the, the Coco preferences system is so brain dead, super simple. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it, it's not genius because it's this complicated genius system. It's genius because it is just simple it's like one of the simplest stupidest things they could do where each app has a unique identifier and they just use domain names so like you know like bare bones is com dot uh bare bones dot bb edit yeah uh, dot p list and that file goes in your library preferences folder and it's guaranteed to be unique because that domain name belongs to bare bones so they get to control that you know mm -hmm. there's com .mail for mail and it's just a file, and the app reads from that file, and that's where your preferences are stored. And if you delete BBEdit, and that com.barebones.bbedit 
you to delete the app. That file is sitting there. It's only a couple hundred kilobytes, and it never gets in the way. It's right. not like a database that's getting gummed up. It's just a file that's in the folder, and you're at you know there is no harm. So if you've tried fifty different text editors and then settled on one, those forty nine preferences files in your preferences folder don't slow a damn thing down. No, it's going to be when you've got Adobe CS4 and CS5 yeah, and yeah. CS6 in there. Or on the other hand, like something like, well, I never use GarageBand, so I'll delete the GarageBand app. Well, GarageBand has like a 400 megabyte. Yeah, the loops and, loops and yeah. instruments are enormous. There's Yeah, there's so there's like a huge application support folder, relatively huge compared to most apps that, you know, and again, if you're on an SSD and space is at a premium because, you know, like the default SSD is still like 256 uh, gigabytes, you could save some serious space. Uh, and it's hidden away now that the uh, library folder is invisible uh, by default for most, you know, for for new user accounts. Um, it's not something, you know, I can see how a cleaning utility could actually help like a typical user if it was carefully written and, you know, but it's a borderline call. Can I tell you about my favorite, uh, my favorite preference uh, joke? <laughs> um Adobe, of course, is the is the answer. There is in my and maybe in yours too. I don't know. In my uh, user library folder, so tilde slash library, there's a folder. There's the application support folder, right? Which is where you're supposed to write all your folders uh, or write your your preference files. I also have a folder in my library called application support slash Adobe slash Acrobat. That's the name of the folder. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't have that. I don't even know. I didn't even know that was allowed to have slashes in a in a folder name, but somehow they did it. You magnificent bastards! You did it, <laughs> and I just it makes me. I want to delete it, and yet every time I see it, it just makes me laugh. It's like how incompetent is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good job. You're in the application support folder. Totally nailed it. I'll send you a screenshot. <laughs> it's it's super nerdy. Um... But that was actually when 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 the next acquisition was made, and uh, uh, and they were going to do the well, we're gonna we're gonna make one operating system with the best of everything. One of the problems was next was a traditional Unix system that used slash as the directory um, separator. So slash was not. Well, maybe you could do it with a backslash, but you know, slash was something that you couldn't put into a, you know, file name or folder name. Right. You try but, to type it, and it would give you a minus or something. Right. But HFS, the Apple uh, disk uh, format, what would you call it? Where's Syracuse when you need them? Well, whatever. The HFS used file system. Uh, file system used uh, colon. Colon was the separator, right. so you couldn't type a colon in a name. So you could type slashes, and so also you know, like a publication, you might for each issue of a newspaper, you you know, like a weekly newspaper. I I think maybe we did, you know, Have my we, colleagues we did this on MacWorld, yeah, yeah. It would be like you know, month slash week or you know, month or year slash month slash date, yep. you know, and that would be it. And so we had all these things that had, um, uh slashes in the actual file names and there was and it just seemed like well something's got to give here but there was a white paper um oh god i forget who wrote it 
but I, I met him. Uh, there was an ex-engineer who wrote a white paper figuring out a way to conveniently solve it. And the bottom line, me, you know, the bottom line is the the penalty we had to pay is that you can't have a colon or a slash in a file name now, <laughs> for real. But you can. It looks like you have a slash in the file name. Mm. It it somehow is fake. Like when it looks like you have a slash in a file name, it's not a slash. I love it. That's, that's... But it all worked out. It actually yep. did work out. We had we had that we had a, a catastrophe where we 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 did that we at some point at MacWorld changed our file name format. It used to be, um, you know, the volume number and the issue number. So it'd be like sixteen slash o four, and that was the whatever that was April of uh, what's eighty four plus sixteen right April two thousand um, issue, and uh, when OS ten happened, we we moved them all to dashes because we were afraid. Because there was a period where OS X would not let you input the slash. You, it, would, it would transmogrify it on the fly to a dash because dashes were dangerous. And to this day, my Apple scripts, I have to do a lot of, you know, POSIX path stuff because uh, if you get, if you get a, an alias in the finder, it comes in with colon delimited. And uh, then there are other tools that want it as a, as, a, as a Unix path, a POSIX path. And you have to do like POSIX pass, path of alias in order to get it in the right format so that you can you can send it to a script or something. Yeah, I don't think anybody is uh, is more familiar with the crazy rules over how to specify HFS versus Unix-style pass than anybody who's written any Apple script. <laughs> it's like, why is this not working? And then you're like, oh, right. <laughs> now it needs to be a, a Unix path. <laughs> or Because inevitably with Apple script, boy, we are in the weeds now, um, you... Uh, you use do shell script, which is an incredible boon to Apple script to be able to just basically fire off a Unix script and get a result back. It's great. Right. Um, but if you're using something, a file you got in the finder, Unix shell script doesn't understand those colons. So you need to convert it and then you send it off. And so that, yeah, I, 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 that happens all the time. <laughs> we are definitely off in the weeds. Yeah. Yeah, I do that with Markdown. Actually, that that was one of the things I would always do is I'd like grab something and run it through Markdown and get the results back and all that. You got to get the you got to get the file names right. So where what were we talking about before we went off on the, the <laughs> file system? Oh, uh, wow, old days. You, next, you were talking about next engineers. God, what was it? We have to back up a little. <laughs> Sponsors, sponsored conflicts. I think that's where we were. Yeah, I think that's probably it. I remember in the early days of doing. Um, um, uh, sponsorships at Daring Fireball, weekly ones that I was selling myself. The first conflict I can remember having was, and this was at the time, do you remember for a brief period, there was some controversy over app bundles? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, where you, definitely. You know, like... Uh, that was, you would, that was like you Mac know, Heist and all of that. Yeah, like, like a Phil Mac... Yeah, and all those guys. Yeah, yeah, Mac Heist. And I had come out sort of against them as sort of devaluing software, at least the extreme ones where you were getting, you know, an inordinate amount of software for a seemingly absurd low price. Mm -hmm. And then a bundle wanted to sponsor Daring Fireball. Right. And I, I don't know. I was very, I can't remember which bundle it was, but I was very conflicted because I felt like on the one hand, I've just written against them. But on the other hand, you know, it's, it's a good deal. It is what it is, you know, and nobody, you know, it's not like the bundles were putting these apps into the bundles without their permission. Right. It was, uh, 
you know, and, and I think I wound up going with it. I did it. I took it because yeah. I thought, you know, it's it, it in some sense you you have to be the publisher. You know, every publication there never really was a wall between editorial and and advertising, even in a big organization. It might have seemed like a wall in the trenches. Yes. Yeah. But totally. eventually you work up the ch- the chain and there's a person whose responsibility, you know, typically their title was like publisher. Mm-hmm. Like certainly in the newspaper industry that was the title is somebody who is concerned with both things. Yeah, and for me, I mean that's what I always said about my job is that I sat on that I sat on the top of the wall. And it's like I got to shield my people from the stuff that was happening on the other side of the wall as best I could, but my boss was the president of the company and the head of was either the head of sales themselves or the head of sales reported to them. And at that level, you know, there were always conversations. Now, again, my job was to kind of steer them in the right direction and protect my people from it. But, you know, ultimately, yes, if you have um if you have a, a business, <laughs> the business people are going to have demands that they're going to want to make, and then it becomes part of the game to negotiate and get things back in a in a place that everybody can live with, that is not uh, you know hinky for the editorial side. That is that was always part of my job up at the top. It's just harder when you know what you're saying. It's like now it's all exposed. It's just it's this guy, <laughs> it's you. You're the guy. You gotta you gotta do it. You gotta you gotta make that decision. Right. Um. Uh... But overall, you know, in seven years-ish, seven to eight years of selling weekly sponsorships, there have been very few times where it's come up. I mean, yeah. and, and there have even been very few times that, that I've had to reject a sponsor. Seems like they know. Well, I'm hoping, yeah, I'm hoping that uh, that actually as a part of this, it's it's partly me and it's also uh, partly just in the environment that it's, it's – I'm hoping it doesn't happen. This was one out of like 16 or it's not even that what 12 weeks, one out of 14 weeks, something like that. Well, and like I said to you, I really do think that that antivirus and cleaning utilities are sort of especially and like I said, darker side is the antivirus are an exception yeah. that there are I can't think of any other topic, you know, sort of advertiser that's in that area. Well, I could I could see, and again, I don't think I would come down on the side of not running an ad for them. But you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of memes that go through our our community and our audiences as they and they're all interconnected, right? I have this thing with six colors where I see you post a link and I'm like, well, I could post a link to that, but everybody's reading John's site, so do I even need to bother, or should I just link to John's link and say just read John's link about it? Um, you know, we are all kind of in the same ecosystem together, and there there some of the memes that come out like there's the whole you know if you're not paying for the product then you're the then you're the uh, you're what they're selling, and I could see something like that coming up where there's some product that is going to sponsor you and what they're really wanting. Obviously, it's free and isn't it great? And I could see people being like, "Hey, that's you know that's no good." There's this other developer who's trying to sell it. And these guys are doing it for free and they're just going to get our information and all of that. I could see scenario like that, although it doesn't seem to have come up up to now. But I could I could see something like that that would be um, unpopular with a part of the community because it seems to be the kind of thing that we all rail against, like what you were saying about the app bundles thing. But um, I, I think it's encouraging that you haven't seen a lot of that. Um, and that's, and that's good. But I, I think, I think it's worth 
Uh, you know, this is so inside baseball, but I think it's worth people hearing that it's not like we don't think about these issues and take them seriously. I, and and honestly, I think that's one of the downsides of the big organizations with the separations of church and state is there's a clear message. And I think people even get trained to expect it from everybody, which is, you know, we don't care. <laughs> it's like the editors are the ones you talk to. They have no power. You never, you never talk to the salespeople. The organization doesn't really care unless it's a serious black eye for the organization. And so, you know, why even bother? There's just going to be cruddy stuff that gets advertised. And with us, you know, we do take it seriously. And that's, that's not true. That's not how we want it to be. I mean, there's also a reason that our sites don't have junk all over them because that's crappy. But uh, big organizations have no problem littering their sites with with junk. Uh, Jay Rosen, who teaches journalism at NYU and is a you know big presence when you, in in sort of the whole inside baseball world of <laughs> of online journalism. But I mean, I think he said I want to put words in his mouth, but something to the effect of if you work at a publication, doesn't matter whether it's print or online or both, or whether it's new or old, but if it's big enough. You know that it's not just like a one-person thing, but it's big, and you can you can be isolated and just concentrate on editorial. If you don't know, understand the business model right. of the publication, you're 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 screwed. You're not you're you're not being responsible, and you're probably screwed. Yeah. Well, the way he phrases it is, you should quit your job, which is probably a little extreme, but he's not wrong that you should. Um, you should understand why your company does what it does and what decisions they're making and whether they're good or not. And, I, you know, I, over the years, I have been fortunate to work with a bunch of incredibly talented people. But what I will say is um, I was always surprised at how some incredibly intelligent, talented people would have no conception about how parts of our business worked even though some of that was communicated fairly clearly. And some of that has to do with frame of reference. And some of that has to do with not wanting to hear it. Because if you're trained as a, a journalist and you hear from the sales guys or the business people, it's very easy to put that in a box. It's like, that's not my concern. In fact, it's my duty to not even pay attention to that. But it always surprised me that I, I would hear uh, even up to the end. Um, and one of the things Rosen points out too is that you need to know the difference between what product people refer to as product and what editorial people refer to as product, which is super important. Because the media today, so much of what happens at these sites is based on the product roadmap and product managers and developers. And you know, the product is not just the words on the website. The product is the features of the website and the design of the website and, and, and tools that editors can use to build things on the website. And if you're thinking of the product as being what you write or as product as being some weird amorphous sales thing, you are you have a really distorted view of what your business is. And that's probably not that's probably not a healthy place to be. And I would have that where I would have people talking about HR or developers or marketing people, people not in ad sales, and the and people who'd been at the company for a long time would say, "Oh, well, those are the, you know those are salespeople." It's like, no, they're not salespeople. They're they're other parts of the business that aren't editorial, but they're not salespeople. And you know that I understand why people would cultivate a simplified view in the sense of like, I just don't want to hear it. I don't want to know about it. But in reality, I think it is a good thing <laughs> to know about that stuff and understand it and understand your place in it. And then if it doesn't make you comfortable, it certainly makes you a better judge of whether the decisions your business is making are solid or are bad or desperate. And if you are in any position to determine what kind of stuff is going to go in the product, right, then um, 
knowing wh where your business is going could actually help. You could actually get some good ideas or help uh, have a bigger voice in deciding what uh, what gets built next. Um, so I, I thought that piece, while a little bit hypey and uh, saying you should quit your job is a little bit rich, but, uh, he's not wrong about a lot of those points that you really should understand the business that you're in. Yeah, I think he he has a sort of better to overstate it than understate it style. Yeah. Well, but and, without and, without, <laughs> without without going into uh sensationalism. And well, I'm trying to communicate some of this stuff. I mean, like I said, some of this you're 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 trying to battle against la la la, I don't want to hear it. It's not my job. It's in the business side. I'm an editor. I don't need to hear it. So you kind of do need to shout sometimes and say, "No, no, no. Pay attention to this." Especially something like the difference between what, you know, product. I mean, that that's come up in a, in a bunch of cases where people have angrily left various website startups who are editorial people. They're like, "Oh, they're just they're just in for the product and it's like I dealt with a, at the end there at, at IDG I worked with a really great product manager and he and I spent a lot of time talking about ways we could improve the product unfortunately most of those things never got prioritized but that was a great experience because we were working together editorial and product management to identify things that would make the website better and 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 sometimes it's better to refer to it that way than to say the product because that sounds a little bit like you're selling something but the fact is you know my editors were frustrated by the fact that all they could really do was put text in the CMS and why can't we do this and why can't we do that and the answer was well we could do that if we worked with the product group but you got to speak their language and that is a challenge so I I I appreciate it when Rosen sort of waves his hands and is like, hey, pay attention. This is really important because a lot of people in journalism don't want to hear that. They want to just work. And it's a natural response, right? To be like, no, no, no. I'm just going to do my thing that I'm comfortable with. But I think it leads to bad, bad places. I think it's, it's a danger. It's dangerous to use the word religion. But I do feel like in a casual way, it, it, the belief that if you're a journalist that you should you you're almost like obligated in a moral sense to not pay attention to the business side was ingrained in at least a generation maybe several generations especially i, I don't know if it's especially us centric or not but it it certainly seems so in the newspaper industry that it was mm -hmm. just almost almost religious that it was you know and and it was only sustainable because newspapers were, you know, like you said, they had a monopoly yeah. and they were incredibly profitable. Just a license to print money. Right. I remember when I was at the Inquirer, there was a time where they had, and this is in the late 90s, where they had buyouts because they had a quarter where their profit margin was 19%. <laughs> they were, the Inquirer was a Knight Ritter paper. Wow. Um, and they were so they the 20% was like this like red line in the sand you know like we're well, I guess you can't have a, a line in the sand mm -hmm. uh and you know they 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 dipped to 19 and they were like instantly went into red alert and you know sirens went off and they like bought people out and it was crazy like i don't know if you guys have yeah. this oh, i think yeah. it's an an east coast thing called metro it's a free daily newspaper hmm. I don't even know if they're still around here in Philly, but it was they they were a free daily um, and it, they set up most of their kiosks at commuter entrances, subway entrances, bus stops. Um, not real thick, 
but you know, it, you know, it was definitely a competitor to you know the Enquirer and the Daily News, and you know because if, if you could read the Metro for free and fin you know finish it before you got where you were going, you had no reason to buy the Enquirer Daily News. Right, um, and it led to crazy scenarios like the guy who was in charge. Uh, I, I as the graphic design work I did, I worked with a lot of the classified advertising people and did a lot of the promotional stuff that they needed to sell you know give to people um and so like the guy he was a great guy i forget his name but he was in charge of auto advertising classified or all auto advertising which was huge 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 business took the buyout which was like two or three years salary and a week later he took the job as the automotive ad guy at metro at the metro like <laughs> and it was like they just paid him three years salary to go and and uh, start selling ads at a rival, and it, and but while they were still incredibly profitable, I mean it was just it was crazy. A times. I mean I, I've definitely right. experienced the layoffs while we're profitable, where the where yeah. the business people are like, no no we're profitable, we're going to make a profit, we're profitable, and then they lay off ten people, and there is nothing worse than saying you can't work here anymore because we're not quite making enough profit. <laughs> And that, and that, but that's a disconnect in business. I mean, there there are businesses that are all about looking for growth and investment, and there are businesses that are just trying to be sustainable, profitable businesses that can employ a bunch of people. And um, and that too is part of the disconnect of like not understanding what kind of business you work for and what their metrics are, and not on a very detailed level of like what's the bonus that structure for the salespeople, but to understand like what are they looking for. And uh, you know what what do they what what do they expect from us, and what's the growth? And some some of that is. Uh, it has to come from the top. And, you know, in my years, I would get a very varying degree of that, depending on who the CEO was of, you know, what do we show the employees? And uh, to a varying degree, the employees wanted to or didn't want to hear it. But uh, I think that's just a dangerous situation to be in, to not understand what kind of company you're working for and what their what their goals are. I mean, in Knight Ritter, at least, it was clear that 20% was the line. And if you weren't showing 20% profit margin, um, that was that was red alert time. Boy, those yeah, are the and, days. And I think it, <laughs> I, I think the danger there is that it, it seemed very clear, like because I wasn't involved, I wasn't going to be my career. It was, I wasn't ever even full time. I was always like a contractor, but I loved the business, and you know, I loved being. But my view from like the ground floor and just looking at the whole thing was that it was so clear to me once I got in and sort of got the gist of how the Philadelphia Inquirer ran at the time that. The people who were in that building working on that newspaper were incredible people, absolutely amazing people. Um, I forget the exact years, but there's a stretch from like the mid-80s to mid-90s where the Philadelphia Inquirer won more Pulitzer Prizes than any newspaper in the U.S. Yeah. It was a tremendous, tremendous team, and eventually all these this great talent that wound up, you know, working at the New York Times and Washington Post and Newsweek and Time, and they they all took these buyouts and went to these other places. But at the time, it was amazing, and they, you know, were dedicated to the craft and dedicated to the civic, you know, duty of a newspaper in a big metropolitan city and all this stuff. But it was so clear that Knight Ritter was an was a corp as a corporate parent didn't give two shits if they were selling widgets or newspapers or whatever as long as they hit that 20 percent profit margin sure. and had growth it didn't matter what they were doing had no 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 love or interest in what it meant to actually be making a newspaper and and you know like we were saying when you're when you've got the license to print money you can it's a little bit easier to be blissfully ignorant but i i 
you know, I, I think, again, somebody could listen to this podcast and say, aha, here they are. They're all admitting that uh, that uh, journalism is not truly objective. It's uh, actually affected by what the business does. Well, you know, the truth is, of course it is. Uh, unless you are consumer reports or something. And even then, you have the objective of getting donations. And if you don't get them, you can't stay in business. There is always a fundamental precept of a, of a media business about what they're doing and and what the, why they're doing it. And like a, a sports writer at the Philadelphia Inquirer who is from uh, San Francisco can't say, you know, I've decided I'm going to write about the Giants. <laughs> right? It's like, no, no, our, we're in the business of covering Philadelphia. And right. I got that when I went to Mac user, they told me like, Apple's big in education, but we're not targeting education. And it's like, that was, that was the target market. Our target market market was the Mac. And it was, it was the business market primarily. And then secondarily, you know, other users using it at home, but not education. And why was that? Because they didn't spend a lot of money and those advertisers, advertisers didn't want to reach them because of that. And yeah, that was, that was focusing what we could write about, but you know, that's just a fundamental business constraint. What, you know, the, the objectivity comes on like on the inside of those constraints of like, this is what this publication is. This is what this website is, whatever it is. And then within there, I need to be free to make the decisions about the best way to serve that audience. But how do you choose the audience in large part in most of these businesses is uh, you're choosing an audience you can make money selling ads to and that's okay but um, that is a fundamental thing that I mean journalistic uh, freedom only goes so far there is a fundamental precept of your business that you do need to follow as much right. as that guy might like to write about not if not the Giants but write about darts or uh, Canadian football or whatever it's like that's not what you're here to do that's not who we serve with with the Philadelphia Inquirer Right. Uh, yeah. And you have to be able to, you know, even even in our lean, mean, you know, one person type operations like Six Colors or Daring Fireball, you still have to be able to, you know, do it in a way that makes sense financially. And and yeah. the, the thing that makes me think about that. So in a whole, you know, 10, 15 years, you could it's it, very, very feasible to just run a, a weblog out of your pocket. You know, mm -hmm. I think I I could I forget what I pay per month for during Fireball, but if I really wanted to go for if I just wanted to do it without any sponsorships or ads or any revenue at all, even with the readership I have, I, I think it would be like a hundred dollars a month. Yeah, maybe maybe I could probably find a way to make oh, it lower. You could do it. Yeah, but, you could certainly do it for fifty. Right, I, but, I'm, I'm paying fifty, and I'm running the incomparable and six colors on the same same server for fifty dollars a month. It's not a problem. Yeah. But the reason that podcasting has exploding has exploded recently is that until recently it was financially unfeasible. There was no way it, it doesn't seem like that long ago when I started during Fireball, but there's just no way financially that in two thousand two, two thousand three, two thousand four that I could distribute right. 100, 100 megabyte MP three files to thousands of people. It <laughs> no, would no have it, it would have cost thousands and thousands of dollars a month. Even a couple of years ago, I think that would have been the case. No, it's it it the the rise in podcasting correlates exactly to when it became financially pretty cheap. Yeah, through, know, through SoundCloud free. or Libsyn or Squarespace or or through a hosting company that gives you a you know a terabyte of data for fifty dollars a month, that sort of thing. Right, but until recently, there there was no such thing. Correct. You, you know yeah. the, the 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 bandwidth limits were you know, in the low gigabytes or even the high, you know, hundreds of megabytes. And so if your files are, you know, a typical podcast for this show is somewhere around 100 megabytes, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little more, depending on how long it is. But, um, you know, every 100 people, that's 100 or that's a, a gigabyte, yeah. right? 
or adds no, up fast. maybe ten people. I don't know. It adds up. Super it adds fast. up really fast. I did the I did the math when we were pulling the incomparable off of uh, five by five, and I was trying to figure out whether we would host that on our own server or whether we wanted to use a CDN for it. And and I did the math, and I was like, wow, that's a lot of data just on a regular episode of a moderately popular podcast. It's a it's a just in five years ago terms an impossible amount of data. And cost aside, it wasn't even something people would tolerate. You know when they were connecting with very slow connections they might think i'd like to listen to that but jesus it's going to take all night to download oh yeah megabytes. yeah i so, remember those days of like you know leave the leave the mac on downloading podcasts in itunes because it's going to take forever right but you really you need to understand stuff like that you know mm -hmm. you, you need to know that if you're going to do video you're probably going to have to host it youtube or something like that just because that way you don't have to pay the bill yeah and you better know what the terms are for youtube then and you know are you gonna use youtube's ads and what percentage do you get and is that gonna you know then how many people do you need to get is viewing each video for you to be able to make a living doing that right yeah you've you know it's not too complicated but you've got to there's there's all these abstractions where you can just pretend that these things don't exist and you don't have to worry about them there that it doesn't work like that right uh, let me take a break. Good time to take a break and thank another longtime friend of the show, our good friends at Squarespace. You guys know Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one website building, hosting, slash design tool. You go to Squarespace, you sign up for an account, and you can create your own website. What type of website? Something like a blog or do you want to host a podcast? Squarespace can handle the audio too. That's another cost-effective way. Yes, absolutely. You could do a blog. You can do a podcast at Squarespace. Uh, but what if you have a totally different idea in mind, something that's more like an online store where you want to sell stuff? Well, guess what? Squarespace can do that. Uh, portfolio, maybe you're a designer or a photographer or something like that, and you want to create an online portfolio of your work. Uh, well, Squarespace can do that. Just about any kind of thing you could need to build a website for. Squarespace has those sort of components right there ready for you to drag and drop into your own custom design. They have templates to choose from to start with, beautiful templates, and that they scale right from your phone to tablet to 27-inch uh, 5K Retina iMac. Uh, and they have the brand new Squarespace 7. This is the latest version of Squarespace. Uh, totally redesigned. Everything is uh, right there. You don't really have to, if you're logged into your account, you, instead of uh, a separate editing mode, when you want to change stuff, you just do it right there. It is sort of the original vision for hypertext, where the big complaint against the, the World Wide Web when it you know, came out in 1993, 1994, was that Editing was something you did in a text editor through FTP, and you had to know HTML, and uh, browsing was something you did in the browser. Why can't you edit right there in the browser? Well, that's what Squarespace 7 does. You just look at what you're looking at. It's WYSIWYG, and you drag what you want to drag. You take out what you want to take out. You add what you want to add right there in place. They've added integration with Google Apps. They have a new partnership with Getty Images. So if you want to get uh, stock photography, stock imagery, uh, you could do it right there through the Squarespace uh, partnership with Getty Images. Uh, 15 of their templates are all brand new, specifically for Squarespace 7, uh, and all of them are super beautiful. The other thing you get with Squarespace, uh, definitely worth mentioning every time they sponsor the show, is award-winning 24-hour, 7-day-a-week tech support via live chat and email. 
they have teams, tech support teams all around the globe, which is how they keep it going 24-7. So no matter what time you're working on it, whether you're working on it late at night, middle of the night, early in the morning, uh, Squarespace has tech support ready to help uh, answer any of your questions. So where do you go to get started? Go to squarespace.com slash the talk show, and you can start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. Uh, use the offer code JG, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So the URL is squarespace.com slash the talk show. The offer code, which you use later on, go sign up through that URL. Then a month later, when your free trial's up, use this code JG, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase and uh, support the show. So my thanks to Squarespace. So what else is going on? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the, the funny thing about this time of year is it's uh, it's pretty quiet. And uh, you're talking about going out on my own. I we, we used to have like a whole staff who would come up with ideas of like stuff you could write that you could put in the system um, and just sort of have it play out over the, the last two weeks of the year when nothing was going on. And doing this myself, I'm like, oh, yeah, I should probably put something. I should probably write something today because <laughs> there's nothing going on. But it's difficult because there's really, you know, there's nothing going on. So you end up writing lots of, hey, let's look back at 2014 and what did we learn and what are my favorite things? And I don't know. It's it's a tough it's a tough time of year uh, because there isn't a lot of tech stuff going on. I've used it in the past. This year, I've just been busy. It's just been a crazy busy holiday thing with family and travel yeah, and stuff. But I hear that. a lot of times, I use this the lull period to write um, something that it might take a long time, and therefore, you know, uh, like if I have a big thought piece on, you know, where I th- what we know about the wa- Apple Watch now, two or three months later. Um, I wish I had more time for that. Maybe in this coming week I will. But I have idea. But something like that where it's not has nothing to do with what's new or news. But just take advantage of the fact that there isn't any news to really focus on and and write it something like that. Right. Yeah. I um, that's one of the things that I've been grappling with in doing the site is is how do you balance writing um, you know, being a one person operation, right? If you're busy writing a deep think piece about something that's going to go on for a thousand words you're not writing things to post on the site today and i feel i feel like with a less established site like mine i definitely feel pressure to keep the lights on every day and uh and try to balance those things and you know you you have a different pace you you can post some links and then you put out a bigger piece every so often and i i i like your pace but i don't feel like i i can do that right now i feel like i need to keep the keep the heartbeat a little stronger because i'm trying to establish myself and 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 pick up uh and pick up a, an audience that I may not have, you know, have captured yet. Um, but then I end up in this situation where it's like, wow, it's going to take me three days to write. Like the, the review of the of the Retina iMac was an example where I, I, it took me like two or three days to write that. And one of my challenges was always, um, should I keep writing this now or should I stop and find something short to write and post to the site just to let people know I'm still alive while I'm also writing this longer piece and trying to find that balance is, is – uh, is tricky. It's one of the again not being on a team anymore and being just myself. I, I've learned the powerful lesson of how little one person is capable of of uh, producing versus a staff. <laughs> then every once in a while, though, I surprise myself and I'm like, "Holy crap! I got a lot done in the last a lot published in the last 24 hours. Like not just like stuff that I'd been working on for a long time and happened to finish. It would, I, I would just be like, "Wow! I I got like 
eight links and a full article yeah. all done in the last day. Why can't I do this every day? Well, I think I think part of it is is energy, and part of it is that that stuff doesn't always happen like that, right? I mean, there are days I I know exactly what you're talking about, and maybe I didn't recognize them as much before as I do now. But there are those days where it's like, oh my god, there's like five great links, and there's like three articles I could write about things that happened today, and those are wonderful days. And and maybe you defer a couple of those articles to later in the week, and you just keep right. on writing about it. And then there are other times when when it's just like, wow, what is happening? <laughs> Nothing is happening. And, and you know, CES is going to happen next week, I think. Yeah, January 5th. And there's I always something starts. interesting to write about there, even if it's sort of the anti-CES. I'm very happy to not be going to CES this year. Um, but uh, so, that you know, things, the news cycle will, will spin up again. But you're right. It is kind of nice to have that uh, uh, ability to either spend time with family or reflect a little bit or work on a longer term project. And, you know, I've been thinking about that, too. But the tr- with travel, it becomes a lot harder to uh, to uh, find the time to do that stuff when you're when you're traveling or with family and all of that. Yeah. Do you have the um, I know it, it, I don't know. Did, I don't know if you've ever I, I happen to know that Six Colors is running on movable type. Yes. Uh, I've been reading that, to write a post about that at some point, just like yeah. kind of come out of the closet and be like, yes, like it might, it might be the last, the last new major site to launch on movable type. <laughs> it's possible. I heard from the people who were doing the current version of movable type. Cause I'm using movable type four, which I think maybe oh, the, you're using. Yes, yeah. definitely. Oh, the last, I mean, the joke would be the last good version. That's what a lot of, because five was not so good. And I heard from the people who are the current support license people for movable type, and they're like, you know, that we want to talk. Maybe we can give you a license, if you, you know, we can use you as an example. And and on on one level, I was like, oh, that's interesting. But then I also was kind of thinking, I'm not sure they they added anything that I would actually want. And I'm fortunate to have my friend Greg Noss is like. Uh, savant with uh, pearl for one and movable type for two and so in a way i've got an off-the-shelf you know cms from five years ago or eight years ago and a guy who can customize it to do whatever and so that's pretty good and i threw out all their templates i didn't use any of their templates when i built the site templates it's all original templates um but uh you know sometimes it's just go with what you know and although movable type is old and weird um i also know it like i i I could have done wordpress but i actually don't know wordpress i would have to learn a lot about wordpress or squarespace or anything that i was doing and and i thought i've already got the server here it's already running movable type for some other projects why not just do that i i can do that without learning anything about the cms and i can just focus on the content and and getting the templates live and when i was launching a site in a week that seemed like a good idea so you know it's fine do you do you have the im imt plugin that lets that gives you like a a posting interface from the iphone oh i don't think i do see that to me is the game changer and i don't know and i know that wordpress has like a pretty good maybe even better iphone optimized interface um uh, I'm gonna. I forget who else wrote IMT. I know Brad Choate, C H O A T E, who was a longtime uh, Six Apart employee. Yeah, yeah. You know, was, wrote the plugin originally. It it goes back to like 2008. I mean, it came out, or maybe even 2007. It came out very early. It, it you know, it it doesn't give you all of movable type. It only gives you it just pick a blog, either pick and make a new entry or edit an existing entry, and then when you open an entry, it. It's just, you know, here's here's the fields that you show. And so I hacked mine a little bit just to make it a little bit more specific to how I use the fields. Oh. But uh, Yeah, well that's what but, I did with um 
like uh, Greg wrote a plugin that does audio processing because doing podcasts in movable type is problematic because movable type doesn't know like what the byte count is. And you're supposed to put that in the RSS feed, the length and the byte count of the file you're linking to. And so he just wrote a plugin for me that, that does that. <laughs> and that means I can keep using it. It is a little bit like, uh, you know, an IT person saying, I know that there have been five versions of Adobe Photoshop that have come out, but we're just going to stay on, you know, version three because it works for us. And we're okay, right? It's a little like that being on this old CMS, but it works fine. And if at the point that it doesn't work fine, it's got a perfectly reasonable database format and I could migrate it somewhere else. But, um, you know, like I said, knowing somebody who can write a movable type plugin um, in, in a few hours to solve a problem helps a lot. I could do anything with the six colors though. It's so simple. The incomparable is much crazier. It's in movable type, but it's got like multiple blogs and they're all related to each other. So it's like a relational well, that's, database. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, the, the incomparable is no longer one thing. Right, right. Because it's right? multiple podcasts. So we've got we've got a podcast blog and an episodes blog and they, they interrelate and that's how you can generate multiple podcast feeds and a master list and a master feed and all of that is actually a bunch of movable type things. That's a totally crazy thing, but it works. Um, and and uh, we built it because there was just things that uh, that the Dan Benjamin CMS didn't offer and they were not things Dan should ever have built because his other shows would never use them. But for like, I want an index so that people can find out that we talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark in like episode eight or something. And they can go to a page and scroll down to Raiders of the Lost Ark and there's a link to the podcast where we talked about it. And Dan's, Dan's site was never going to do that. And that's not his fault. It's just, it didn't make sense for him, but I wanted those features. So we built this crazy thing in movable type. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy, but it works pretty well. And once I had that up and running, it was really easy to just add the the six colors uh, blog on onto movable type too, because I, I was already wrangling it and Greg already knew it. And so we decided to do that too. The nice thing about movable type is, you know, it's template language is fairly simple, but it's pretty robust. And, um, and it's, uh, it's rendering static pages, which means you're not going to get fireballed, <laughs> which is nice too. Well, everybody renders static pages. It's just a question of whether they're rendering them at, immediately or whether they're calling it caching well that's true that's true and caching with with wordpress has gotten a lot better um which is which is good and i've used wordpress it's just i'm not comfortable with it um it's interesting to see stuff like this is 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 in some cases is a nerd litmus test a little bit right it's like oh what blog platform do you use and and there's some immovable type is not cool it's old and weird but um right tool for the job you know right tool for the job and 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 uh I'm a big believer in that, that that I shouldn't have to spend a week getting up to speed in a platform that's going to let me do exactly what I was going to do on the thing that I already know. Um, and if I had to jump, I would. In fact, when I'm thinking about doing like site registrations or something for, for the website, that, that uh, one option I have to do like a, a membership, a voluntary membership for Six Colors, there's a, move, or there's a, there's a WordPress plugin that does a good job with that. I think that's what Ben Thompson's using. Uh, it might be, and it's what Sean Blanc is using. Or if not, he's customizing. Yeah, it in some way. yeah. But Sean Blanc, I know, told me about it. And um, you know, if if I if I want to use that tool, I can just set up a WordPress instance too, <laughs> and use that for that, and not for the rest of it, and just have them interconnect. And I can do that too. It's not, you know, it's it, it's not necessarily bad 
to to do stuff like that but it does make me feel not cool when i get i got an email the other day from somebody who was like i i see uh your this feature on your blog and i would like to implement that um i assume you use wordpress like i do how did you do it i'm like oh okay bad news <laughs> not using wordpress yeah i've gotten that over the years too with like the combined posts thing although we're you know you can definitely do it in wordpress but you would have to do it in a different way yeah yeah and and again, I don't know how you do it in WordPress, but I know exactly how you do it in movable type. So especially for just wanting to get it up soon, it made it made a lot of sense to to do that. And I, I you know, I kind of like movable type. It's funky and weird, but um I had an argument with somebody where they were talking about what real real markdown was. I mean, don't get me started, don't get you started, but uh I had a moment where I said, you know, I still consider markdown.pl the definitive markdown. And they uh, very, I think, thought they're being very smart. They said, yeah, but you don't actually, you know, how much of what you do actually gets processed by markdown.pl? And I said, all of it, <laughs> because either <laughs> I run it in a script in BBEdit and it outputs HTML and I paste that in somewhere, or I'm using movable type, which is using the markdown.pl on the fly to convert those to HTML. So I'm, you know, it has that advantage too. Even my, uh, the markdown dingus, at Daring Fireball, which is an extremely popular um, thing. I mean, I, thousands of – the number of people who use that webpage every day is greater than I think the daily readership of Daring Fireball when I went full-time. <laughs> it's it's that popular. Uh, it's just a little PHP form where you can enter some markdown, hit a button, and then it gives you the output beneath, which you can then copy and paste elsewhere. Um which I originally wrote just for people. I didn't think people would actually use it as a as a tool tool. I thought it was just like if you're learning this, if you're reading about this and you want to learn, type something here and then you can see the output here. And there's no better way to learn than, you know, you can see that you put asterisks around the word and then in the output it puts M tags around the word. Um, but people use it on a daily basis just like, oh, I want to convert – I need to get some. I need to have this in HTML. I'll quick dash it out here, hit the button, and copy and paste it. And I have so anyway. That's great. But it's a little form written in PHP. But behind the scenes, it still calls out to the Perl version. <laughs> and it's uh, it sounds when I did that, I thought, well, that's never going to scale. Like if this page gets popular, it's got to be slow. But it's not. It's because the whole thing is so stupid simple that even if it's a PHP script that calls out to the Unix shell and runs a Perl script on a text file and then puts the input back in. It all takes place in a fraction of a second. You're waiting longer for the network than you are for my server to do that. <laughs> it's amazing how far we've come. Yeah, because I remember when running a Perl script was actually like, you know, Stop the presses. slow. Right. It was like, <laughs> should I write this in C or should I just write like a Perl script and it's like well it'll take a second or two for Perl to fire up but you know what I don't I, it's so much easier I'll just <laughs> do it uh, I want to take a break and this isn't even a sponsor break I want to circle back half an hour I've uh, the research department the the award winning research department here at the talk show mm -hmm. uh, has found the white paper that I was talking about it's by Wilfredo Sanchez I cannot believe I forgot Fred's name because uh, I've even uh, had drinks with him uh, at WWDC. Great guy. Uh, it's a Usenex 2000 presentation. So this is from the year 2000. The challenges of integrating the Unix and macOS environments. Uh, and I will put it in the show notes, guaranteed. It is, I, I swear, it sounds very dry, but it is a terrific read if you have any uh, 
technical interest in this sort of thing like, well, how do you square the circle of having a classic Mac OS with colon separators and Unix with slash separators and other issues too, like the fact that the Unix file system didn't have file IDs and the Mac had aliases and didn't have sim links and Unix didn't have aliases and did have sim links and et cetera, et cetera. How did they make it all work? Uh, it is a wonderfully well, you know, it's typical just for someone who would be a great engineer at Apple. It is, it's written in very, very clear language. So I will put it in the show notes. Don't want to forget that. That's right. And, and my, apolo my apologies to anybody out there who's listening who remembered uh, that Fred Sanchez wrote that paper <laughs> and for the last 45 so, yeah. minutes has been writing email while they listen to us continuing on the show. Isn't that great when you get the Twitter feedback that's like, oh, you can't, it, it, the answer is this. And you're like, just keep listening. <laughs> we got it. So my apologies to that. <laughs> I know where you are in the show right now. Your patience will be rewarded. Just keep on listening. <laughs> uh you had another oh you know what let's talk about the uh the interview sony thing oh yeah that is something that that was going on over uh over christmas right this whole thing where uh sony entertainment got hacked by somebody many <laughs> yeah. people including the u.s government believe either by the north korean government or by a group sponsored by the north korean government right um perhaps in protest of this movie, Seth Rogen, uh, James Franco, or as, or as President Obama called him, James Flacco. James Flacco, yeah. <laughs> what, I mean, what's the story? It was conflating him with the, with, the Ravens quarterback, Yeah, Joe right? Flacco, right. Exactly. Joey Flacco. Um, uh, you know, a movie that is about a comedy about them assassinating uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Right, being tr they're they're asked by the CIA to to assassinate him. Yeah, uh, and then they got hacked, and all this embarrassing stuff came out, and then they got threatened. There were threats, whether they were real or imagined. That any theater it was supposed to come out on Christmas Day, I guess. And any there were threats that any theater that showed it was going to you know perhaps suffer some kind of terrorist attack. Yeah, I think they said there would be another nine eleven at another movie theaters near you. Yeah. Right, which it doesn't seem like... Seems good, implausible, you know. yeah. Yeah, you're going to fly how many yeah. airplanes into the movie theaters? But anyway, uh, theaters decided... Uh, I think uh, I, I think it was a mistake, but I think they made a, a simple economic decision, which was, well, Christmas is a huge time for movies, and period. This movie in particular wasn't going to be a big hit anyway. Right. Just screw this movie and keep the theaters open. Right. And then, you know, next thing you know, Sony wanted to release it online. And uh, they did, but iTunes was not among the, the, the streaming outfits that had it on, on Christmas day, one. day. Right. Um, as we record, we're recording on the 29th, uh, 29th. It, it hit iTunes yesterday, the 28th. Mm -hmm. um, I think that summarizes the situation. Yeah. And there was a, there was one weird story that, I, that suggested that Sony had called the White House asking for help in getting Apple to put it on iTunes, which I, I, I have not seen any corroboration of that, but that was the one that, that struck me as like, that's weird. That's a weird. Yeah. That was the New York <laughs> times. And it was an off, it was just like in the middle of the article and it was just sort of offhand. I mean, I don't know if that's your call the switchboard and you ask for Eddie Q's number, or is that like president Obama? Can you do us a solid and call Tim cook? I, there's a spectrum of what might've happened there. 
Um, and, and it's unclear from that. There's sort of the implication that they wanted it to be an iTunes exclusive, and and but a- a- Apple wasn't interested. And then uh, you know what ended up happening is that it went up on Christmas Eve on Google Play and on YouTube at, on YouTube uh, for purchase or rental and Xbox uh, through Xbox Live. Correct. Um, but not iTunes until until uh, the 28th, I guess. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> I wrote today, uh, just before we started the show, I, I gave it my Headline of the Week award. Uh, <laughs> Finally. The BG- <laughs> what was the – BGR's headline was Apple – oh, God, I don't want to get this wrong because it's so classic – BGR's headline was Apple finally decides to stand up to Sony hackers releases the interview on iTunes. Oh man. So I you know whether it's true or not I nobody I've got nobody on the record but you know speaking to some people at Apple nobody directly involved at iTunes but people who know people who are involved at iTunes that the story I've heard and it makes sense cuz like for example if you're a developer this is public knowledge iTunes Connect closes around like the 22nd or 23rd. And, it do, and they even say, you go to the iTunes Connect site, they say iTunes is, Connect is closed until December 28th. They close a couple of days before Christmas, um, and they don't open until a couple of days afterwards, and that's it. Like, whatever you want, if you're a developer, if you want to get a bug fix in, you've got to get it in before they close, and otherwise you're going to wait about a week because they want to give people time off. Um, so my understanding, I think that what happened was Apple – and, and the New York Times article kind of hinted at this. Not that Apple wasn't interested, but they weren't interested in doing it on Sony's timetable. That it was – this was like the blackout period for iTunes. Uh, and it's not easy. Like this stuff is non-trivial. Like to have all these movies streaming around the world, it it takes a while for them to propagate around to the CDNs, the content delivery networks that Apple uses. Um uh, and again, in theory, if they wanted to get it up on Christmas, I'm sure they could have. But I think they would have had to call people back from vacation and, you know, make all sorts of exceptions. And I just think Apple's decision was this is not our problem. You know, yeah. if we have the movie, if we get the movie three days from now, so what? Yeah. And I think they might have they might have said it's not going to be that big a thing. I don't know. I, I look at the I look at how this story had gone and kind of think that somebody at Apple probably should have said, um, let's be prepared to slide this thing up on Christmas Day just because that may be how this goes. I think it was clear a while ago people were talking about maybe they would just make it available video on demand. Um, and I know that that's, uh, yeah, that's probably telling an employee or two at Apple that they need to they need to come to work or be on call to come to work over the holiday. And that sucks. But at the same time, you know, although that headline is ridiculous, I do feel like um, there was a chance here for Apple to just kind of be a part of the story. And instead the story was, oh, Apple doesn't have it. That's weird. And I don't know. I mean, if they're in the business of working with the studios to get this stuff up, wouldn't you want to be seen as being on the on the forefront of this and being flexible enough to get it up? And I, I kind of feel like what was revealed is that Apple's systems are a little bit rickety and uh, and they were they were running a skeleton crew. And so they just couldn't get it up in, in time for the, for the timing of it, which is kind of weird. Although if you've used iTunes Connect, it's not unreasonable to think that. That's a weird, you know, back end system that regular people never have to see. But yeah, you know, it's not a big deal, but it is a little surprising that it shouldn't Apple be at the forefront of this stuff and be like, sure, we can put that up. No problem. 
don't know. Yeah, I do. I do kind of feel that aside, you know, and again, who knows what the actual capabilities are? I don't know for sure. But I do think that it might be true that Apple's back end system for this stuff is less nimble than, you know, and, you know, no surprise that Google might be a lot more nimble in this regard. Yeah, yeah. That they can do something quicker. They can pull something, put put it up quicker and have it propagate and, and stream around the world quicker than Apple can. Were they... I mean, Apple Apple's still the company that when they make changes to the store has to take the store down <laughs> right. for an hour or two. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, I just think that's that's part of the story. And they've gotten better at it. But it also used to be that there would be like TV shows that would come out and it was like supposed to be released on midnight after the after the show aired or something like that. And then on iTunes, it would always be like sometime the next day or maybe the day after. And I never knew whether that meant that somebody at the TV studio just didn't get the file to them in time or whether it was like literally there's a lag in iTunes Connect for content and you know, the systems are slow or the approval is slow and that stuff gets uh, gets delayed. And they seem to be better at that now, too. But it's possible. I, I don't know. It's also possible that Google and Microsoft and whoever else uh, posted this thing had no problem uh, telling their staff to work on Christmas. And maybe they maybe they had that plan. And Apple has this kind of corporate culture of dismissing everybody for that period of time. And, uh, you know, maybe that's that played into this, too. I don't know. <laughs> it's not really anybody though right i mean it can't really be everybody because the, you know no. on christmas morning when everybody's launching you know new ipods or ipads and somebody iPhones, somebody's so got to be there There, there right? are always people on call so that that that's the part that just i don't know maybe they just uh, didn't think it was that big a deal and that it was uh that they didn't need to be there um it's just it's funny in the end when the president is talking about it in his news conference it's probably a big enough deal to pay attention to it i think if you're apple just to not be even if you're not going to be the exclusive provider of it to not be the one major player who's not providing it and i'm not saying they were afraid or anything it's a lot of stupidity in in those statements but i'm just saying for pr purposes alone don't you want to be not seen as being a step behind microsoft and, and google play yeah i totally agree with that and and though the movie is a silly, stupid comedy and not like a serious political right. statement, which, you know, would I think if it had been, if it had been some kind of like documentary on North Korea that had, you know, sparked the hack right. and the public the need threats, to see this movie. Right. That I bet <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised if Apple had made the exception then. But I feel like it almost doesn't matter. Like. And I actually did rent the movie. Have you rented it? No. It was really bad. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Is that, I mean, I did not. I don't love those very, guys at their best, but uh, at their worst, seems like not a not a best showing for them. No. There are very few movies that even even though I'm like halfway through and like wow, I regret renting this, but I'll <laughs> I'll stick it through to the end. That this one I did not make it wow. through. Like my wife and I just looked at each other. It's like let's just go to bed. Let's yeah. go to sleep. Because <laughs> otherwise, I think I'm going to fall asleep down here in front of this thing. It was not funny. But I still feel like, you know, we can't have our movies being held to the whims of, you know, anonymous nut job hackers. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. You've got to stick to your guns. And I kind of feel like, so as stupid as the movie itself actually is, I kind of feel like it really was an exceptional situation that warranted probably exceptional, and you know, an exception from Apple from what they would typically do. Right. right. You know, it it wasn't just like Sony had called them up and they're like, ah, we had this movie from the summer and I, 
we've got it scheduled to come up with you guys on January 2nd, but you know what? It's like, can we do it like a week early and maybe get it up on Christmas? And Apple is like, no, you guys, you know, before, you know, your chance to do that was last week. It's coming up on January 2nd. This was not just like a regular situation. Like you said, the president of the United States is talking about it. Right. Right. I mean, I'm glad that it ended up back in theaters and it sounds like it was the theater chains were like, we're afraid. We don't want to scare people away from the other movies. So we're just going to punt it. And I'm glad that that some theaters finally showed it. And I'm glad that it was on VOD and that people could watch it. And yeah, it's a shame in a way that this isn't over a uh, a more serious, thoughtful piece of work instead of a kind of a stoner road comedy. But, and I, you know, I like Franco and Rogan. I mean, I like uh, from all the way back in Freaks and Geeks days, actually. Um, and the fact that Seth Rogan is a guy who headlines movies is totally crazy for me because, I mean, look at that guy. <laughs> he's not a movie star, and yet he is a movie star. I love that. And he's a writer who has become, you know, he was primarily a writer who has become more of an actor now. I, I have lots of positive thoughts about those guys even if their movie is kind of sucky um i'm glad that it got out there and yeah it, it yeah you would think i don't know you would think somebody at apple would be like yeah guys i think we need to do this uh and and i think perhaps that did happen eventually after the fact where maybe on christmas day somebody was like why why are we not out there with this and so now we see it you know because it, it it went on iTunes faster than I thought once it didn't go on iTunes on the day of release. I thought that's going to lag behind and they're going to come up and turn all the lights back on and then they're going to put it out there. And it, it, it got up there faster than I thought after after they passed by the initial drop date. No, it was exactly – I would say it was exactly what I expected. Mm-hmm. I read between the lines and my guess was all they said was we're not going to do this we're not going to get this up by christmas and that's it we'll get it in you know somebody will come back in on friday or monday and push the button yeah we'll make it happen yeah yeah stupid movie cannot (laughs) really not i really cannot yeah an international incident propelled by a uh a, a stoner road comedy it's amazing. This is amazing. The world we live All in. All right. Let, let me take a break and thank our third and final sponsor of the show. And it's a trifecta of longtime friends of the show. It's our good friends at Hover. Uh, Hover, as you may know, is the world's best domain name registrar. No junk, no upsell, no scams, no hidden prices, no hidden fees. You go to Hover, you sign up for an account. And you register domains and you get great service. You get great technical support. You get a great interface for searching for domains. So like if you have like a couple of words you want to use .com and it's taken, they'll help you find other top-level domains. They'll help you find alternatives based on the words you're looking for. Really, really, really clever software for getting the domain name you want. Um, but the best thing they have, I'm telling you, this thing is amazing. Uh, I've done it and it works great, uh, is the uh, valet transfer service. So you sign up for a Hover account. You've got domains at a bunch of other registrars from around the web that you've been registering since like the mid-90s. If you give Hover your login credentials to your old domain name registrars, they'll take care of moving those all your old domains into your hover account so you'll have them all all your domains in one centralized location uh with their great interface their great support just one place to go to renew your domains for the rest of your life uh 
because it's such a hard thing. DNS is so easy to screw up. And when you do screw it up, it takes hours to fix because you got to wait for the changes to propagate. Um, and how often do regular people mess around with DNS? Me, almost never. I kind of vaguely sort oh, of ish know what it's like. <laughs> it's the, terrifying. The, the valet transfer people at Hover, this is all they do. All they do is live, eat, and breathe DNS and domain name stuff. So they're experts. And they know all the ins and outs of all the other registrars and all the tricks that they have and stuff like that. It's just an amazing, amazing service. And you don't pay extra for it. It's just part of being a Hover customer. Can you find a cheaper registrar than Hover? I guarantee it. I guarantee you you can find cheaper ones. But Hover charges really fair prices, good prices, and gives you amazing value in return. So if you have a new idea that you need a domain name for, I'm telling you, go to Hover. You're crazy if you don't. If you've got domain names registered at any other registrar who's you're just not satisfied with, sign up for Hover and let them move them over and you will not regret it. I have never met one person who's like, wow, I regret switching to Hover. No, it's it's like the apple of domain name registrars. It's just a cut above the rest. Um, here's the coupon code for this episode. This They're on a booze theme for this show. So this week's <laughs> code is bourbon. So you sign up. When you sign up for your Hover account, use the code bourbon, B-O-U-R-B-O-N, uh, and you'll get 10% off your order. So sign up for a whole year at a time. You'll save a ton of bu ton of bucks. You'll say you'll get a couple of months for free. Um, my thanks to Hover, the world's best domain name registrar. Sign up for uh, your account now. I have sixteen domains at Hover. <laughs> I may have a problem, but I do. And, and count. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's where I put all the when I when I got six colors. That's where I put it. Is uh, yeah. See, uh, I was about yeah. to say I'm going to repeat myself, but it couldn't. It must have been something I told you in person because you haven't been on the show. Right. I think six colors is such a great name. Oh, thanks. I, I, when you came out with that, you didn't ask me. You didn't say, hey, John, what do you think of the name? You didn't. I, my feelings were a little oh. hurt. But I think it's because you knew you had a home run. Yeah, well, that was, I mean, I expected a lot more hand-wringing and, and uh, difficulty. Honestly, I, I, I did some brainstorming when I decided I was going to do this site. And I thought... I don't want it to be I something or Mac something. I'd already spent years dealing with a, a brand name with Mac in it that was talking about iOS. And I also wanted the freedom to talk about other tech stuff that's not Apple related at all. But I also didn't want it to be just completely divorced. I wanted I wanted it to mean something to me. Completely divorced from Apple. I was like, well, if I can tip my cap at Apple somehow and yet have it not be necessary uh, to understanding, just have it be an easy to scan site uh, site name, that, that was what I was looking for. And I also wanted it to be something that was kind of normal words and spellable and a dot com those were sort of all my rules because i did tv.net which was t-e-e-v-e-e.net and there's nothing worse than having to spell it out and then and then point out it's not a dot com it's a dot net and you know i just i wanted it to be simple and then that that struck me that classic um you know the it comes from the d interview that steve jobs did with walt and kara about uh, when he came back to Apple, wrapping back around to the beginning of the show in, in 96-97. And he was amazed at how many um, good people were still there when he thought the company should be just empty because it was in such dire straits. And and the phrase that struck him at the time was somebody told him, or m multiple people told him, that uh, you know, we bleed six colors here, I, or I bleed six colors, that the classic Apple rainbow logo, which was the logo at the time, it's like, it's in my blood. This is Apple is part of who I am. Um, and that struck Steve. It's like, oh yeah, bleeding six colors. That makes sense. You love Apple like I love Apple. Let's uh, make some great stuff. And I, I felt like that was that was it. It's like I'm not going to always.
always praise everything Apple does. I'm going to criticize Apple. I'm going to try to be fair when I write about Apple. And I'm going to write about things that aren't Apple. But Apple has defined my career in tech journalism. There's no doubt about it. And it would be crazy for me not to find a way to to reference that. And so I thought you know, bleed six, six colors, bleed six colors. What, you know, let me look that up. And I found out that there were no websites called that. (laughs) The .com domain for it was available. It was owned by somebody, but it was just a site literally saying, make me an offer. And I thought, oh, well, (laughs) it's like, and then I gave it a few days where I just thought, maybe, maybe not. Do I want to do this? What do I want to do? But I, I never went to a backup name because I thought, well, this is great. It doesn't say Mac. It doesn't say I, it's a .com. It's regular English words. And, uh, so yeah, so then I ended up making, making those people an offer and transferring it to hover. And I bought six colors with a U for everybody in Commonwealth countries. (laughs) It redirects to the one without the U. It does it redirect or does it mirror it? It redirects it. And what I want to do at some point is write a script or something that mirrors it with, um, all of the words swapped out for their English (laughs) equivalents, but I haven't gotten to that point yet. Oh, maybe that would be a good addition to Smarty Pants. <laughs> Englishify. Like, yeah. add a, put a monocle and a top hat on it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it was, I'm glad you like it. I, I mean, I've gotten incredibly positive feedback from it, which is which is great because you never expect positive feedback from anything on the internet. You expect people to grouse about it. But, I, you know, I've been, I, I've been uh, happy to have the people say nice things about it. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy about it. I, I was, like I said, I expected this to be a real trial and for me to get something that was a compromise. Cause you hear those stories like Marco tells a story about overcast and how he had all these different ideas and, you know, things he couldn't get and things that didn't pass, pass a, a trademark search or anything like that. And, you know, for this, I was really just looking for a, a ideally a .com domain. Um, I would have taken some others probably if I could have come up with something clever, but, um, you know, this for me was a good fit. It's like, if you get what it's referencing, then great. And if you don't, it doesn't matter. It's just, yeah. a, it's just a, a brand. I mean, like Daring Fireball is a, it's a good name. <laughs> you know, it's a good name. It's, but it's funny though, cause it's not enough to have a good name though, because, well, I wonder about that today. Like I know, uh, like Jason Freed at uh, Basecamp. I was going to say 37 Signals, but <laughs> I, I always want to call him 37 Signals. I will for the rest of my life, but he, he's written about. Uh, how domain names don't mean as much anymore, and they have Basecamp.com now. Right. Um, but for I think at least ten years, Basecamp base HQ. Ba- HQ. Yeah. Everybody who used Basecamp knows mm-hmm. that it was HQ. And his thing was, look, man, people just Google Basecamp, you know. <laughs> and then what? You know, when they have an account, they just start typing B in their auto, you know, in their address field, and it fills in. And when they're looking for it, they don't go to the website. They go to Google and they type Basecamp and base. You know, we could be Basecamp HQXFG, and you know, yeah. they would get to us. Um, so I do think it's a little bit less important. I agree. Like it's better to have a good name that just sounds like a good name. Six colors. It sounds good rather than worry about the domain. But I still think that there's an art to getting a name where it looks like a good URL. You know, and so every once in a while, it's like I'm trying to think of an example, but like a lot of times when you have like an S in the middle, it, it, it if it's plural, like sixescolors.com, it, it's like, hmm. you know, you, it, it doesn't look good. It's like you, you, you lose the two words. You know, you want, if you're going to combine two words together, yeah. like daring fireball or six colors, you want it to be completely unambiguous, even without camel case, because that's how most people are going to see it. 
And every once in a while, you come up with a domain name. It's like two words put together. They sound great. The meaning is great. But then you look at them all lowercase together, and it's like you can't read it. Well, I mean, it's like, oh. we had a lot of politics involving picking a name for the site that we launched at, at IDG, and we chose TechHive. And I, there are a lot of things I love. I love the logo. I love the colors. I like the name. But in a browser, it looks terrible because it's the two H's in the middle. Yeah, that's a good, perfect. That's exactly the sort of thing I'm talking about. Yeah. No, but it again, it did, you know. But that's two H's in a row. It's it's exactly yeah. right. Whereas in, in if it wasn't for the URL, you would never it would never occur to you right. because the eight the second H would always be uppercase and yep. there'd be a they'd either be camel case or it would be two words with a space between them. But either way. It would be a lowercase h and a capital H, and it wouldn't be a problem. Oh, I did get, um, and I've never even used this, it redirects, but I did get sixcolo.rs. Because, <laughs> oh. I don't know, why not? That's like Serbia. Yeah, Serbian domain registrar has some of my money now, but I don't know. I, I bought a lot of domains when I was speculating about the, about the name, and that's why I have 16 domains in Hover, is I've got, I've got bleed six colors and bleed six, and I, I've got numeral six of something, but not of six colors, and... And a few other names that were in there, Snell World, which is where I posted my like sort of resignation announcement thing. That was just a placeholder until I could launch Six Colors. But um, but yeah, I, I it's a name, right? It's a name with real words. You don't have to explain it. And Daring Fireball is like that. I mean, people might ask, what does that mean? But uh, the words are recognizable. It's an understandable concept. And I think I think in the art of naming, that's what you want is you want something that is going to catch a little bit and be like, oh, yeah, because, yeah, even if the domain doesn't matter, although, quite frankly, you're on a podcast or you're on a, a TV interview and somebody says, oh, where can people read about you? It helps, especially at the beginning to say sixcolors.com, because, you know, if you say, well, here's a weird URL you have to go to, it's less likely anybody's going to remember it, but they might remember the name. Did you get the digit six colors? I didn't. Uh, and I, I would like to get that at some point, but it was quite frankly, it was too expensive. Um, after I bought the others, I was like, wow, that's really pricey for just a redirect. And to your point about Google, um, I feel like after some amount of time of me doing this, um, I can decide whether I want to go ahead and buy that. And uh, my feeling is at some point, those other alternatives are a lot less valuable because there's already a thing that is sixcolors.com and so numeral sixcolors.com is not a you know they're going to think well it's it, it's valuable if they can sell it to me but nobody else is going to want it so i hope to get them eventually but i'm not going to pay uh, an arm and a leg to get them just because they'll redirect i've told this before when i registered during fireball i registered .net and .com at the same time yeah. and i i went with .net as the canonical one because um i I, I've since grown out of it, and I guess if I had it to do all over again, I'd probably use the .com. But I, at the time, I had a weird aversion to .coms. I just thought, I, I don't know. This, if it's inexplicable. I cannot express it. It just felt like .com meant you were like a big company. Well, there was a time when .net was kind of cool. It was like a cool, like insidery. Um, you know, we're we're the techie people of the internet, and we we have .net. We had I had TV not net and .org. I just didn't ever get .com. Yeah, I don't know. It just seemed to me like a person with a site should not have a .com. Yeah. And I don't even know. I've never even asked him. I've always thought maybe that's why Kotke uses Kotke.org. Uh, but I registered those two. And this was back at a time when there were really only three big ones, .net, .com, .org. And I didn't register .org. Somebody else has it. It's this guy, Peter Hahas something. Mm. If you go to daringfireball.org, it's a guy who hosts his personal blog there. <laughs> I swear to God. I swear that to God. crazy. I, and I bought the I, .org for six colors. 
I've, you know, every once in a while, somebody will write to me and, and point it to me and be like, hey, are you aware of this? But it's like the guy, he hasn't updated it in two years. So, uh, and it was never popular. Um, so I just thought it's not, it's just not worth it. Amazing. I don't know why he did it. I, it just seems to me like he's probably, he must be some kind of crazy person. It's also possible that his blog is somewhere else, but he's parked, he, he's parked that domain at the same IP address and it's just accepting yeah. all the, all the traffic. And so even though he's thinking that he's serving that at, you know, my, my blog.peterhahas.com, it's also ser- still serving at daringfireball.org. I don't know. That happens sometimes. Yeah. For a while, the guy who owns newspaper.com, or at least he did own newspaper.com, had it redirecting to Daring Fireball. Hmm. Uh, I didn't have it. It wasn't my domain. It was this the guy who had it. And it's, a you know, I don't know. Newspaper.com is probably a pretty valuable domain name. Maybe. It, it no longer, <laughs> it still isn't a thing. If you go to newspaper.com, it's like a sorry, we're down for the moment. And there's an animation. But for a while, and it was just weird, though, because uh, it was like, I don't know, it was enough traffic on a daily basis that it showed up in my referrals. Like, I was like, hmm. what the hell is this newspaper.com that is like my 15th highest referral? And I went to it, and it was Daring Fireball. And I was like, what? <laughs> and, and oh, and I, oh, the other thing was while he was doing it, I would get I would get about one or two offers a month to buy it. Sure. And I was like, it's not me. <laughs> I was like, I don't know why it's pointing to my site, but it ain't me. Yeah, I I remember there was a story about that. I, I think maybe even a site I did had that for a while, where somebody owned it and they didn't want to give it to us uh, or sell it to us. But they said, "But I'm not using it, so I'll just redirect it to you for now." I was like, "Okay, that's that doesn't really help me because I can't rely on it." But it's nice that you turned the spigot on us for a while. Um, you know, the story with TV.com is that it was a it was a blog on CNET for a while and T E E V E. I think it was, no, it wasn't even CNET. It was like Hotwired or something like that. And they got, uh, Wired Digital got sold to uh, like Lycos or Alta Vista or something like that. And it basically got sucked into this giant internet company to, to the point where they were never using it. If you visited that.com of my.net.org, if you went to the .com, you just went to the search engine homepage. And I spent years trying to get them to not even to sell it to me to find the person who was in charge of the domains <laughs> at Terrasoft, Lycos, whatever. Just, to this just, to this day, I have just, no idea. Just give me somebody to talk to. Yeah, because you know we just have this blog. You're not using it. It was the name of a blog on a website that you bought ten years ago. They only did ten posts or whatever, and then and then they shut it down. And to this day, if you go to teevee.com, you end up at insiderinfo.com um, at the Lycos network. Um, huh. which, uh, yeah, with, with, with a, uh, a form submission of SRC equals NM domains. I wonder if that's like all of our dead domains just redirect to this page where they, uh, where they, uh, I don't even know what it's like a user submitted content or something like that. So they're renting out all these do- old domains, but it's like that. They just, they got that domain domains are funny. They got that domain a million years ago and they just keep paying whatever they're paying as part of the thousand domains that they own and will pay for it forever. And you know, that's always the problem when you're shopping for domains is, is that is that if it's somebody wants to sell it, it's great. But if it's just inside the maw of a giant corporation, forget it. <laughs> you just forget it. T V T E E V E E. You see the problem here. Dot com. Dot com. Yeah, it just redirects to like some kind of uh, it's weird crap. site. But dot net and dot org, you know, we we still have actually, and that was yeah. that was my you know that was the TV blog that my friends and I did for yeah. for like ninety six to 
I don't even know when, sometime in the 2000s. Ends up Lycos is still a thing. I guess so. Or again, there's a company that I... swallowed Lycos that owns yeah. the, the assets and including all of those domains that they bought. Well, and they still run it. And no, I just went there. It still operates as a search engine. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I have not thought of Lycos in a it's long amazing. time. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it may even be powered by somebody else, but it's 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 still there. So but you can still go there and get search results. Nice. So I'm sure they're really good. I wonder if they're search results from the 90s. <laughs> That'd be funny. I searched for Jason Snell and it redirected me to Snell World. So, oh, well, that's not bad. They're up to date. That's not bad. I was uh, at my mom's house and she found a uh, thing I did at Mac user, again, bringing it back around, called the Internet Roadmap. And it was like literally this uh, this subscription premium, I think, or maybe it was a newsstand premium. It was like a roadmap, except it was of sites on the internet and they were all interconnected. And it was actually a project we did where we went from site to site with links. Each site had to link to the next site in a chain. And it is crazy. Um, but the the funny thing about it is that the backbone of that, that we used to really make it functional was Yahoo at Stanford when they were the, just a, like a link directory. And we would use that to link out to the sites. And literally there were like 150 sites on the map and it was most of the internet in 1995 or whenever that was. Um, so old. I, I had to look this up. I actually looked it up through Lycos. Oh, good. Um, but talking about domain name. Forget problem. it, DuckDuckGo. Lycos it's is where cl- it's at now. It's a classic McSweeney's article. You had to have seen this from 2004, written by uh, Michael Ward. And it's email addresses it would be really annoying to give out over the phone. Ah. <laughs> it's, it's much more of a visual joke than a verbal joke because of the nature yeah. of the email addresses. But it's like, for example, imagine if your surname were underscore. Hmm. Mike underscore 2004 at yahoo.com. Uh, I'll just put it in the show notes. I, the rest of these, I don't want to spoil it, but it's a funny little uh, five-item list gag. I'll put it in the show notes. I've started doing more show notes. That's good. I don't know if people I like don't know them. if you've noticed. Yeah, it's I, I used to be really lazy about it. But I feel like it's one of the little things I can do to make the show a little better. Well, you know, people are in their cars and they hear about something that's going to be interesting. And then they, you know, get to work and they forget. And they're like, oh, yeah, what was that thing? And it's hard to look back at, at you know, scan through two hours of podcast when you can just go to the show notes and be like, oh, yeah, that's the thing I was looking for. It's like it's like you're pre-instapapering the show for them. I think. Yeah, exactly. And it's a pain. Yeah. I mean, it, it's totally a pain. But um, I... As you, if you do it as you go along, it's a little bit easier. I've started to do that with incomparable and with clockwise. Mike does it for upgrade, but um, you know, just somebody mentions something and I just write it down. <laughs> it's like, and it's a pain to do that because it gets you a little bit out of the flow of your concentration of the uh, of the conversation. But at the same time, it kind of beats having to go back later and say where did they mention something, and you know, and people do like it. People appreciate it when you add those links in. Um. I had Renee on la- on the last episode, and I think he he even wrote on iMore that he was on over three hundred podcasts last year. And I knew I already had already asked you to do the next episode. I do think I've gotten back to back the two most prolific <laughs> podcasters in on the Mac web. How many podcasts do you think you do a year? Oh man! Um, and you're probably doing more now. I would, so maybe a better question is how many are you on pace to do? Yeah, a year? I, I don't know. Mike Hurley probably has me beat, um, or it's close. I would say uh, if if I keep doing what I've been doing now, next year, 
uh, let me do, I'm going to do some launch bar math here. <laughs> um, let's see. I'd say, oh man, 250. So you're at ballpark, right? I mean, we're talking like if somebody wanted to listen to every show that you're on and oh, every show that Renee's on, they're talking 500 episodes a year. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it goes, it goes, uh, it goes fast, and I, I don't expect anybody to be a, a completist, but yeah. So I, I basically, I'm doing four weekly podcasts. Um, I'm not the center of all four. Um, I, I mean, the, I do the one with Tim Goodman from the Hollywood Reporter, and we talk about TV because he's the TV critic at the Hollywood Reporter. And I'm the I'm kind of the classic Dan Benjamin role in that, where I'm facilitating it and producing it and posting it. And really, it's like I'm I'm asking questions of the guy who's the expert on TV because he's TV critic at the Hollywood Reporter. That's a very different kind of show to do than Incomparable or like Clockwise is just a half an hour, and it's me and Dan Morin. And then Upgrade is me, a lot of me, but Mike produces that one. So you know, each of them takes a little bit a different amount of time but yeah if you put those together and multiply them by 52 that's 208 podcasts right there and then there are some others that are like i did uh i did a podcast after every episode of game of thrones last year and or this year and doctor who as well and so that that's an extra like 23 episodes and then uh we do our little dungeon and those were under the those were under the incomparable umbrella. Those were the flashcasts were under uh, TV, actually T E V E. I'm reusing the names and the logos. T- I think if you just pronounce it T T V, yeah T V, um, long E's. Anyway, we put it there because I, I I don't know I, I'm torn. I, I could basically have like five podcasts a week in the main incomparable feed, and I I feel like that's that would be litter. So there's like a master feed with everything, and then you can just subscribe to the individual podcasts if you want to. Um, and then we do the Dungeons and Dragons thing, which is literally we play Dungeons and Dragons once every six weeks for like four hours. And then that comes out every other week in a one hour chunk. So it's not a lot of time um, and it's fun, but that is another podcast that I'm on. And then I say yes to be on other people's podcasts like this one. So it's a lot. There's a lot of podcasting. We'll see how 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 long I last. I wish podcasting was more like aerobic exercise because I, I could really use some more exercise. And instead, I'm just doing a lot of podcasting. I'd be very healthy if uh, podcasting was uh, more aerobic than it is. I've been dreading this the whole time. I've been putting it off the end of the show, but I feel like I've got to run it by you. Almost an apology is that I've got one more episode of the talk show scheduled for 2014. And it's, it's going to be a special episode on star Wars. Oh, and, and I, it, it, I didn't invite you. That's okay. I know. I'm okay. I know. (laughs) I, I, I forgive you. I know way more I'm, I know so many huge Star Wars fans, and I am not. I'm not one of those. I, I like Star Wars a lot, and I'm happy to talk. We talked about it on the Incomparable a million times for right. millions of hours. And Syracuse and Dan Warren and I did an hour, more than an hour on the trailer for the Force Awakens, right? But you know, in, in even in our sphere, I could list off a whole bunch of people who are bigger Star Wars fans than than me, including you and and John Syracuse and Dan Warren. No, it's going to be me. It's going to be Syracuse, and uh, and then to keep us straight. And sort of and sort of keep us from getting too serious. Guy English. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's that's perfect. I love I love. But Guy see, English. I, my, well, my thing is, I feel like I I cannot be responsible. I can't be the host for more than uh, a panel of three, including me, uh, because it's 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 beyond my ken as a as a host. That would also be like eight hours long if if yeah. if you were just completely just free to talk about Star Wars. That's the. 
That's I, I, I've, I don't know if I've said this before, but I'm going to mention it here because I'm not sure I've said it anywhere. One of my favorite moments in waiting in line for an Apple keynote ever was uh, you and me and I think like Dan Moore and, and I'm not sure if Syracuse was there because I think it was the press area before WWDC. And we were talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark for like 20 minutes. And there was that moment when the doors <laughs> started remember. to accordion up and you looked at me and you're like, forget this. Let's just go talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark some more. <laughs> it was, that was good stuff. That was, that was, I almost took you up on it. It's like, yeah, that would be fun. But, uh, well, that was the incomparable. One. I did the, I did the incomparable then with yes. the Raiders, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was you and me and Dan talking about it. Yeah. I have to do one of those yeah. again sometime, uh, you know, on something, uh, something that you, that you really like that, uh, that we could cover. Cause that was a, that was a good one. And one, one of the, I still hear from people who listen to that one. Partially it's like, Oh, John Gruber was on the incomparable. I should listen to that. But the whole goal of that show from the beginning was, uh, it's a catalog show. You should be able to go back to 2010 when we recorded that one and listen, I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark isn't any different. It's, it, you know, it's, it's fixed in time and you should be able to go and pick that episode off the shelf and listen to it and get something out of it, you know, and I think you can. Um, and I, that was always the intent. And I'm, I'm happy that, you know, four plus years later, um, that that's still true. That's, that's still one of my favorites because it's one of my favorite movies. In fact, I, I look back and I think, boy, we should have gone for like two or three hours on that, not just one. Yeah, exactly. I think it was when we had an artificial time. I was shooting for an hour. Yeah. Uh, I always want. I always want. You say it hasn't changed and isn't going to change. I always imagine in the back of my head that like every Monday Spielberg comes into the office at Amblin and there's like a stack of like three pink slips that say George George <laughs> Lucas <laughs> called and wants wants to talk to Raiders of the Lost Ark special edition oh, and man. he just he just picks them off the spike and <laughs> puts them in the trash can. That's yeah, no. I mean, it's actually bad enough that the packaging is now labeled Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is just unacceptable. Yeah. George called. He had an idea yeah. the boulder could be on fire. Yeah. That would be much better. <laughs> Let's insert a scene in CGI where Belloc is already in Egypt. <laughs> George called. He had an idea. There's a whole fleet of airplanes waiting on the river, not just one. Yeah. Instead of them traveling across the map, they travel across a 3D globe. That'll be good. Did you see somebody put together uh, a, a special edition of the Force Awakens trailer? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. And they did like a killer. I should I have to put that in the show notes. So they did like a killer job. Like somebody actually who knows what they're doing, like with VFX, like... And <laughs> yeah, it's just more like, more just, buzzing junk and Tatooine, and yeah, I mean, it, it is. I, I, uh, yeah. Well, like if, if the the it it it's only funny because it's not even an exaggeration because it's exactly the sort of stuff that did happen in the special edition of the Star Wars movies. But like, there's the scene where you see all of a sudden you see the Millennium Falcon, yeah. and it's like being chased by like three Tie Fighters. Well, now it's being chased by forty five uh-huh. Tie Fighters. <laughs> more exciting that way. Clearly. <laughs> anyway, so everybody out there, if you want to, if you're listening to this, this show will air first and then the Star Wars Special Edition. If you want to warm up for a holiday week, uh, end of the holiday season special talk show, uh, pop your favorite Star Wars movies into your uh, movie player of choice. That's good advice. All right. Jason Snell, it's, I'm going to let you go. I think, I think, I think we've, we've rattled on long enough prattled on long enough i i appreciate the invite it's always it's always nice to talk to you and and hopefully no uh calamitous things will befall me in the next couple of days after this one 
I'll tell you what, if they do, if anything bad happens in the next week, I think we're going to have to call this off. Yeah, that may be. I may actually ask you to delete the episode. Just salt the earth. Forget it. All right. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, John. Hey, have a good new year. You too. I All appreciate right. the invite. Anytime. Okay. See you soon. Uh, probably. Probably so. All right. I'm uh, hitting stop.